how long you're in each stage and how you're cycling through that, that doesn't look normal. The Z drugs and the benzodiazepines do the same thing. Alcohol does the same thing. One of the biggest things that it does is it, it interferes with our self-awareness. And so we don't realize that we're impaired. It's like, like being drunk. So when you're getting good quality sleep, you're the most resilient. So now you can handle the insult of the sleep deprivation much better. So I would recommend you know supplementation or definitely anything that's going to improve the quality of your sleep. That's going to be night and day. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, this is a little bit of a unique hybrid episode, a part two with an interesting introduction add-on as well. I explain it in the actual episode, so I will leave it at that. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash sleep questions two. That is the number two. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. Definitely listen up for the Blissy ad in this episode because, oh my goodness, we're talking about sleep in this episode and silk pillowcases are such a game changer for good sleep. I have known this for quite a long time. You know how when you're sleeping and you have to keep switching over the pillow to get the cool side of the pillow? You don't have to do that with silk pillowcases. They are incredible. They're also great for your hair and skin. So I was obviously thrilled when Blissy reached out to partner with me. They make affordable, sustainable silk pillowcases. I I am so glad they're doing this because up until Blissey, I feel like there was sort of a barrier to actually getting silk pillowcases and bringing that into your life. Blissey is making that possible. I have a 30% off code for them. So just go to blissy.com slash Melanie Avalon. That's blissy.com slash M-E-L-A-N-I-E-A-V-A-L-O-N. And the coupon code Melanie Avalon will actually get you 30% off, which is insane. And like I said, there is more information in the ad in the middle of this episode. So check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post there. And again, comment to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. 
I do feel pretty shy about it, so please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now. Before we change to subscriptions, you can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. 
Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all Beauty Counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall 20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, and they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Kirk Parsley. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have, although this is a little bit of a unique scenario on this show. So (laughs) I am back with a guest who this will be his fourth appearance on the show, which is a record. And what you're about to hear after what we talk about right now is actually part two of an episode that we recorded quite a while back (laughs) all about sleep. Q&A. It was questions from you guys. And so it's been a long time coming. We're going to air that. But before that, since it has been about a year, we decided to do a quick little update in the beginning, especially since this guest, Dr. Kirk Parsley, has something very exciting going on that I just wanted to share with you guys. So yes, we're going to jump in. Kirk, thank you so much for being here. Melanie, thank you for having me. What are you doing right now that is super, super cool that might break a world record that has to do with your background as a SEAL and also a doctor and all the things, and it's very exciting? Well, I'm doing several really exciting things, including 
being on this podcast right now, but I think what you're alluding to, I did, I don't want to um, embellish or overstate my importance in this. I'm not actually one of the world record breakers. I'm just going to be part of the team, the support team. It's called Triple Seven, and it's a an, an expedition with the intention of well, two intentions. One is to break a world's record for skydiving on all seven continents. Hence the one seven, one of the sevens. We're attempting to do this in seven days, which would be the second seven, which would be, which would beat the current record by thirty fold, I guess, because the current record is seven continents, seven jumps, seven continents in seven months. So we're trying to do this in seven days, and then the third seven is the you know, the, the entire purpose for doing this is that we're we're trying to raise money for. The spouses and children of you know of the fallen and, and special forces, military service. So there's about a dozen former spec ops guys, which means special forces guys, special operations. They're not all seals. Five or five or six are seals. Around around half are seals. It's going to be twelve guys, including an older gentleman uh, who currently holds the world's record for the seven jumps on seven continents in seven months. So he'll, he will get to break his own world record at being part of this. But our intention is to raise $7 million for these families. And we have, this is more your world than mine. I don't, I don't really know these people, but we have a director of documentaries doing uh, Dan Myrick, who's famous, notorious. I don't know. He did Blair Witch Project, right? Who did the Blair Witch Project and lots of documentaries, docu series, and and some television shows, and then producers got him Christian Krimple. He did a Navy SEAL movie that's called Act of Valor. That was kind of, I guess, the Navy SEAL attempt at being Top Gun, but it was nowhere near as cool as Top Gun. I guess so didn't get the attention. But he also did that movie, the Three Hundred, the Spartans that fought at the gates of hell and held off a. 10,000 man army with 300 guys for three or four days or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, it's a, it's an old ancient tale. Uh, so he did that movie. So this is going to be a docu series. I'm going, I'm going for a couple of reasons. One, I'm going to be, you know, the medical support and just for day to day stuff. But then of course, in the unfortunate situation, if someone were to get hurt or injured, I would, I'd be responding to that as well. But I'm also collecting data. We have a whoop as one of the sponsors, the whoop bands. They're going to be collecting, you know, all the data they can. I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be collecting serum and salivary samples to look at people's, you know, anabolic and stress hormones and inflammatory markers and some things like that. And, it's not truly a research project. It's really sort of observational, but Men's Journal is a big sponsor of this. So there'll be a big publication about it in Men's Journal after it's all done. You know, the 12 guys jumping, they're all going to have their own preference. You know, they're going to take whatever supplements and whatever they want to do to make themselves feel better during the jump, but we'll know what everybody's taking. And so it's kind of a near world, a little bit of biohacking to see how people can see what people can take for compensatory efforts against the the certain and unavoidable circadian disruption that we're all going to be dealing with. So that's, that's the big project. Okay. So I know you and I were talking before this about how I was just going to basically ask one question, but now I have some follow-up questions. 
As you do. So I traveling is not my skill in life. So the idea of even traveling like one place in seven months is probably a lot for me. Definitely one place in seven days. So seven places in seven days, seven countries in seven days and jumping out of planes. I can't even imagine that. I'm super curious. You're always talking about the importance of sleep and how important that is. What do you anticipate sleep-wise? What sleep are you guys going to be getting? And how do you think that will affect people's jumps from the beginning to the end? Like, is this dangerous? Like, is this okay for their health? This is dangerous in that the events themselves are dangerous. And then, of course, the farther we get into this expedition, the more sleep-deprived people are going to be, the more sort of metabolically disrupted they're going to be. And so it will get progressively more dangerous, obviously. And then there's always danger associated with the drop zone, where you're landing, who's dropping you, wind, you know, weather, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of unknowns in this, you know, we basically have a 72 hour window for every DZ. So it could take up to 21 days if we spent all three days, you know, if we spent 72 hours on each DZ before we actually got our jump. So we don't know exactly how long it's going to take, but yeah, I mean, if, if you remember, I don't know if, we've talked about on the podcast, but surely in the many conversations you and I have had, I've probably discussed my guiding principle of the Pareto distribution that guides everything else in nature. And so the whole idea of this is to make these guys as completely as resilient as they possibly can be before we start this, right? So, you know, the whole idea behind the Pareto distribution, that's the 80-20 rule that people talk about. So, you do everything right 80% of the time, essentially, right? And and 20% of the time, you can't do what you should be doing. But if you're metabolically flexible enough, if you're resilient enough, then you can handle that that bit. And, And that's always what I've had to deal with with special forces guys. Obviously, they don't get to choose when they go to work. You know, they don't get to plan around game day. There's no rules involved. They don't know where they're going to be, how much sleep they're going to get, like all this stuff. And so you do, you do, you everything you can to make people as hard to kill as possible before you do something like this. And so, you know, we did our first training in, in the States. They're, they're training at a, the guys just, you know, working on jumping together. They're all, they're all very experienced jumpers, obviously, but just everybody working together and developing what we call SOPs, standard operating procedures for the, for each jump. We started that training, we did that the first week of this month, and then we're we're going to do a follow-up training in December, and then we're leaving at the very end of December to start this. And so during those couple of months, we're, you know, I'm doing everything I can to work with everyone individually to get their sleep as good as it can be and get their supplement schedule and their hormones and everything that I can do to, to optimize them and, and the world of, you know, in the world of Doc Parsley, I mean, that's what I do for a living is, is optimize people's health. So I'm going to do the best I can to make these guys as, as resilient as possible because it's going to be absolutely disruptive and chaotic and there's going to be canceled flights and delayed flights and rain and clouds and upset politicians and who knows what else. I mean, there's there's problems getting through customs who knows? Uh, there's going to there's gonna be all sorts of trouble. But yeah, we just got to make everybody as resilient as they can possibly be before they start. I have another question. So this concept of building up resilience, 
there are a lot of different places that you could build up resilience in your life. So you could eat a lot and store fat and build up the capacity to like fast for a long time or build your fasting muscle and fast for a long time. Or you could build up your physical performance and have the ability to go all out physically. When it comes to sleep, since sleep is more on a 24-hour rhythm, can you even build up for that? You can. So, so, you, so you can. You can build up. You can build up resiliency. So, if you sleep from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. like clockwork, six months in a row, and then you have two weeks of complete chaotic sleep, you're going to be way better off than somebody who gets approximately the right amount of sleep most of the time and stays up a little too late here and there, drinks a little too much now and then and all that. Now, I'm not saying that I that I expect any of these guys to be sleep zealots for six months, but there's ideal and there's reality. In between that gap is where we use compensatory things like bright light therapy in the morning and blocking blue light at night and taking supplements to help them with their circadian rhythms and all of that, all of that type of stuff, you know? So... That's why we have Whoop involved. That's why we have me involved so that we can fiddle around with people's physiology to help them stay as close to their circadian rhythm as possible. But, you know, the fact is that every time zone that you change, you know, at a minimum takes a day to adjust to. It depends on if you're going east or west, which way is worse. But and we don't really know which way we're going right now. So we we might be we might be going east to west the entire time. We might be chasing sunset, which is a little easier than now than chasing sunrise. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see which way works best. We'll see which way we go. I mean, we we know which way works best, but we'll see which way we go. Do you think there will be a significant difference from the beginning so like jump one to the end jump seven I don't know enough about jumps to even ask this question but like with the the physical taxation effects that have happened with the sleep and the stress and everything like will it actually affect their experience of the jump it will definitely it will definitely impact the in fact i mean you hit on it right there that that's actually the thing that will be the most impacted is their experience of the jump now you know skydiving has some technical aspects but it's not a super technical thing to do it i mean it is a skill and it's a very perishable skill and then you know it takes a long time to develop uh, a high level of skill in that but just like anything else that takes a long time to develop a high level of skill, although the skills are perishable, a lot of the skills are pretty built in. And I wouldn't say it's like riding a bike. It's not that simple. But the point being, so obviously with the, with the chaotic sleep and the circadian disruption, with the malalignment of their sleep schedule with their circadian rhythms, which is inevitable, we're not going to be able to stop that. We're only going to be able to mitigate against it. The most important aspect for for this group, because this isn't going to be super physically taxing for them and it's not going to be super stressful for them because, you know, they've jumped thousands and thousands of times. It's going to be more stressful because they're going to be in a physiologically stressed state when they jump. But the the most dangerous thing in, in skydiving is landing your parachute. And little mistakes happen all the time with really experienced jumpers. Even at this first training, the training that we did our first get together at the beginning of this month, we're working with instructors to help 
you know, train our guys up on their skills and buff people up. So instructors that do this for a living, they, you know, they jump 10, 10 times a day, you know, 300 days a year. This is what, this is what they do for a living. And so they were, they were working with our guys and we had one of those guys get injured landing his parachute, like at the very end. And he has thousands and thousands of jumps. So it's, it's always possible. You know, my big concern is keeping these guys as cognitively capable as possible. Because if you think about, you don't even have to know anything about skydiving, but just think, all right, you're controlling a parachute, which is basically like flying a plane to some degree. You're like flying one wing and, you know, the air is moving forward. And these, these parachutes go forward at a pretty fast rate. They're not just you know, drifting down like a bubble and, you know, they're, they're actually flying forward and they're kind of tilted down so that they're traveling towards the ground and you can kind of change the angle of that to create more lift or more downward and you can turn it. And so the, the mistakes that people can make there, I mean, that, that's the biggest, that's the biggest risk. If you just think about that, that's really executive functioning, right? Because I, I think the best, I think the best explanation of the prefrontal cortex was given by Robert Sapolsky, who's, you know, he, he wrote, he, he's the grandfather of kind of stress research. He wrote Why Zebras Don't Get Cancer and other books like that. He's a Stanford researcher. He called it the simulator. So it's like a, it's like a flight simulator for a pilot. And the benefit is in your prefrontal cortex, you get to come up with dozens of different ideas that you could do right now there's always a decision tree and there's, and there's usually multiple veins of that tree, like multiple trees you can go down. So like, like if I do this, I could do that. I could do this. And there's always a you know, multitude of decisions for going forward in your life. And that's what the prefrontal cortex does. And that's going to be the area of the brain that's the most impaired as they get more and more tired. And so depending on, right, how long are we going to be there? Like, Actually, the worst case scenario is what we're hoping for is that we'll actually get seven continents in seven days because we're going to be, you know, three, four, five, six time zones away with every jump then. And they're going to be day after day after day. So nobody's going to be close to catching up. But, you know, what if we get stuck someplace for three days and then the next one goes like in a day and then the next one we get stuck there for two days and then, you know, there's a delay here. And so the longer this goes on, the more impaired they're going to be. And landing their parachutes is going to create more and more sphincter tone in me. Probably not them, because when we get sleep deprived and we begin becoming impaired from our sleep deprivation, one of the biggest things that it does is it it interferes with our our self-awareness. And so we don't realize that we're impaired. It's a lot like being drunk. So they're going to be thinking that they're doing great. And I'm going to be going, nope. They're not. <laughs> they're, they're in a very dangerous space. Yeah. So that, that's the expedition. Yeah. So does it have a title right now? How can people follow it? So I, I can send you, I guess, if you want to put it in the show notes, uh, but it's legacyexpeditions.net is what it's, is what it's called. I mean, I, I think that's the only thing that will show up when you go there, but it's, it's the triple seven. You know, it has like an icon up at the top for Folds of Honor, which is the name of the organization that raises the money for the fallen spouses and children. But yeah, LegacyExpeditions.net is where you can go read about it. And then there's links on there if you want to contribute to it. Or I think they're even still looking for sponsors if people are interested in that type of stuff. So, Oh, very cool. Okay. Well, I will put links to that in the show notes. Will you be documenting this on social media, your experience? 
I am going to do my best. We all know that I'm challenged in that area, but I'm, I'm going to try really hard to post a lot as we go about this. Awesome. I have another question about one other topic. Another topic that I have become, well, that I talk about a lot on this show and I'm very passionate about is the role of mental health and wellness. And in particular, I've been really interested in the role of psychedelics and mental health and wellness. And I know you're involved in something specifically with veterans and mental health and wellness. I was wondering, what is your involvement in all of that? My involvement in that goes back probably around a decade. So I'm on the advisory board of an organization called VETS, and they specifically do that. They specifically fund psychedelics. They have a Stanford professor involved in their research, you know, who's running their research. They spend a lot of money on lobbying, unfortunately, but that's the way things have to be because they're trying to legalize, help legalize things. And then I'm also on the advisory board of another sort of former SEAL advocacy group, the SEAL Future Foundation. And there's nine physicians involved on that advisory advisory board. And one of the things that that organization does quite a bit of is is work with organizations that do psychedelic treatments. And one of our attending physicians, a guy named Bob Kaufman, who is, I mean, I guess I would say he's the leading psychedelic physician in the country and that he is putting together, there's going to be a psychedelic certification for physicians. I think coming up here in a, in a few months. And so he's, he's heading the board that's organizing that and, and doing that testing. And I've known him for years. He's a former military physician as well. He was the initial the military equivalent of the, the CEO. So he, he was the CEO of an organization called NICO, which is a traumatic brain injury research center run by the military. And they did everything there except psychedelics because it was a military thing. <laughs> so and then he he's exited the military and now he's working with MAPS, which is kind of the the one organization that held, that kept doing research after all the psychedelic research got uh, defunded in the, I want to say late 60s. I can't remember exactly when, 67, 68. So he, he's heavily involved in that and, you know, doing the, doing the research with things like functional MRIs and serum and salivary testing to try to figure out, you know, what exactly these psychedelics do. Because honestly, we don't know. Uh, like we know some things that they do, but we don't know how they do what they do. Those are the two main things that I'm doing with psychedelics. Yeah, I've been so fascinated by it for so long, and I've been wanting to do a deep dive episode into the role of... Well, you should get Dan Engel. Do you know Dan Engel? I will introduce you to Dan Engel. Dan Engel, I was saying that Robert Kaufman is kind of in charge of the certification program, so he's kind of the head honcho in there, but I would say the most experienced physician in America and possibly the world, I don't know, uh, on psychedelics is Dan Engel. And he's, he's written several books. He's had a couple of traumatic brain injury centers. He used psychedelics as one of the modalities there. And he actually just left Austin a few months ago and moved back out to Santa Fe. But he's a good friend of mine, and I would be happy to make an introduction. I would think there's no better person you could talk to about psychedelics as far as like what they do and how they work and what's the truth, you know, what, what's the reality and what's the hype about them and to what 
degree we know the physiology of them, which isn't an, an impressive amount, but we, we do know some physiology about, about what's happening. Doesn't really explain their actions so much. They're still quite a mystery, but he, he knows as much about that as anyone else. And he knows the practical application of them, I'd say better than anyone I've ever known by a long shot, by orders of magnitude. He would love to do your podcast. I'll speak for him. I would love that. Your guest can look forward to that. Okay. Yay. No. And so specifically your involvement of it does involve veteran suicide specifically, right? Yeah. I mean, we obviously treat people who aren't suicidal, but that's sort of the, I, I don't know, when people are suicidal, it becomes sort of the ultimatum because, it, you know, the thing about most of the special forces guys is that they've, they've had years and maybe over a decade of conventional medical treatment by the time they get out of the military. It's very rare that, you know, the kind of the first symptoms or signs they're ever showing of I don't really want to say PTSD, but, you know, PTSD-like symptoms and brain injury symptoms and all that. It's very rare that, you know, those those are just coming online when they get out of the military. Most of the time they've had that for, you know, five or ten years before they get out of the military. And so they've gone through all sorts of treatment for it. And they've done transcranial magnetic stimulation and they've done stellate ganglia blocks and they've done, you know, transcranial magnets and they've done float chambers and they've done hyperbaric therapy and they've done, you know, and they've done all the medications for sure and talk therapy and all that kind of stuff. And so when they become suicidal, you can't really go back to something that they've already tried because if that worked, they wouldn't be suicidal at the moment. Right. I, I would say the, the most impressive in, intervention I've, I've seen in my career working with all sorts of high performers, but the most impressive thing I've ever seen for suicidality is, is a psychedelic called Ibogaine, which comes from a, an African root called Iboga. It gets you know, sort of broken down into just its, its pharmacologically active ingredient is Ibogaine, which they put in capsules. And it's, you know, it's, it, it's done in a very clinical setting with heart rate monitoring and all, you know, all that stuff and, and, and medical assistance around at all times. All the psychedelics essentially, man, we'd be getting into a whole whole ball of wax, but talking very simplistically about the autonomic nervous system, the stress sort of arousal system, it's called the sympathetic aspect, right? And and the primary driver of sympathetic in your brain is something called the amygdala, which is a region of your brain that looks for threat. And it kept us alive very well when our world was what was much more threatening. But, you know, the last few hundred years, uh, human, human life hasn't really been about survival. So we perceive a lot of things as stress that shouldn't be perceived as stress. And so the more sort of amygdala, what we call amygdala tones, it's just like the more amygdala input, more amygdala activity you have, the higher the stress hormones you're producing, the more impaired your brain is, the more impaired your decision making is, the more impaired your hormone production is, the more impaired your sleep is, all of that stuff. So... All of these psychedelic treatments, what we know they do is they decrease the amygdala activity. And we've, we've proven that on functional MRIs. Ibogaine can decrease amygdala activity by 90% or so for up to six months. So there's nothing on the planet that competes with that. And most, most suicidal people don't want to die. They just don't want to be alive anymore because they don't see... They don't see anything in their future. They don't see any way to get out of the mess that they're in. And they just see their existence as making everything worse for everybody else. And it's usually about getting out of other people's way. 
and not so much about getting out of your own misery. It's just, especially veterans, you know, they're people that are very service oriented. And so they're like, I want to, I don't want to be in the way of my family. I don't want to be in the way of my friends. I don't want to like, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to be bringing other people down and my existence is causing everyone else pain. It's better if I'm just not here. You know, as we talked about a few minutes ago, the, the prefrontal cortex being your simulator, that's the one that gives you the multiple ideas. The It allows you to role play multiple versions of yourself in every second of your life to figure out what's the path forward. What should I do? What could I do? What would this, what would the most likely outcome be if I said this now or did this now? Well, if that area of your brain is impaired, which is that is the area of your brain that goes offline, the more stress you have, the more that area of your brain doesn't work. And so if we can decrease the amygdala tone, we're decreasing the stress in that brain and we're allowing them to make better decisions and we're allowing them to look through the simulator and see lots of different options in their life as opposed to just looking and saying everything's bleak and I don't see any way forward. And it's just been absolutely amazing and transformative for so many special forces guys. And in fact, the founder of the, of the organization Vets that, that I'm on the board of that is a is a former SEAL named Marcus Capone and, and his wife, Amber Capone. And they started that because he had such a profound experience with Ibogaine. So, you know, it, it was the typical, you know, two, three, four years after the military where he was retired. He was at home <laughs> really for the first time, in, you know, in their, in their lives because, you know, SEALs are just gone 75% of the time. That's just the way the job works. And so he's actually at home and he's gone from being the best in the world to a completely insignificant kind of nobody in his mind and having lots of strife and problems with the wife because they're really kind of just getting to know each other and really living together for the first time. And and she has her way of doing things and he wants to be the man of the house and she's offended because she wants to do her, you know, and this is very typical. And so they were having all this strife and the lives were falling apart and they were drifting apart and their relationship was falling apart and, and everything was looking really bleak. And he had an amazing transformation as many people do in a single treatment. And she was so happy about it that she was like, well, we've got to get this for this guy and this guy, you know, just just their friends that she knew off the top of her head. And so they got those people treatment. And then she's just like, well, we did, we've just got to get everybody treatment. And so they, you know, they formed a non-for-profit to raise money to do this and, and to do their best to try to make it accessible to everybody by getting researchers and, you know, political lobbyists involved to try to legalize it for research purposes, at least, because right now everybody who does it has to leave the country to do it because it's not legal anywhere in America. Well, this is absolutely fascinating and amazing, and I would definitely love to learn more about it. Our intro just turned into a podcast, I think. I know. <laughs> I know. No, but I really would. This is incredible. Well, I will put links to all of this in the show notes, and I just think it is so incredible, everything that you're doing. I mean, not just in the world of sleep, which is what you've been on this show multiple times for, but also the work with the jumps and how that affects everything and raising the money there for the families and also this work with psychedelics and the veterans. So super amazing. I'll put links to everything in the show notes. And now we will jump into part two of the listener Q&A with people's sleep questions. So for those who are not familiar with Sleep Remedy, how did you decide to develop it and how is it different from like pharmaceutical sleep aids? Like how does it work in the brain? Cause I actually have some questions about it. 
I'm sure to some degree we spoke about the different stages of sleep in the last podcast. And, uh, you know, as a, as a basic review, uh, I assume most of your audience probably knows this. Every mammal on this planet uses the sun as its guide as to when to be awake, when to be asleep. We are highly visually dominant animals, so, and we don't see well at night. So, of course, it makes sense that we would we would preferentially sleep at night and whether the, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg, who knows, but that's the way things are. There's been enough research to, and, and, you know, the, to be fair and clear, the, the research, actual sleep research, you know, with the true scientific rigor, it's only been around about 60 years, but we've pretty well established now that the way that we align our circadian rhythm and that's uh, kind of a job security word. Circadian sounds fancy, but it's just circa means about, and dia means a day. So it's about a day rhythm. If there's no light influence, a, a male's circadian rhythm is slightly longer than 24 hours, and a female's is slightly shorter, or vice versa. I don't know. I can't. Really, I'm pretty sure that's the way it is, but it could be the other way around. It's never proven re- relevant in my career. But what you know, essentially, what happens is the blue light goes away because the sun goes down and then we have some nerve cells in the back of our eyeballs that sense blue light and when the blue light goes down that essentially causes those neurons to fire and then they start firing you know down the nerves down our optic nerves and into our brain this kind of circuitous pathway eventually stimulating the pineal gland to secrete the hormone that most people have heard of called melatonin And when melatonin gets secreted, that's sort of, as Matt Walker calls it, that's the starter pistol kind of of the whole of the whole event. So that's really when the game gets going. There are hundreds of physiologic shifts in the and the dominance of neuro neuropeptides and neurotransmitters and neurohormones that are in your brain that like the concentrations of those in different regions of your brain all shift dramatically and they keep shifting dramatically during the night, depending on what stage of sleep you're in. I, I think most people probably heard that there are sleep stages. One of the other sort of requirements for even feeling sleepy and feeling like you need to go to sleep is for this neuropeptide called GABA, capital G, capital A, capital B, capital A, gamma aminobutyric acid. That gets secreted in the brain, and that essentially slows down the brain. The what we call the neocortex, which is what what you think of when you think of a human brain, that shape, you know, under kind of underneath and embedded in that shape is the primal brain or the lizard brain or the you know all of that in the brain stem. So not that part of a brain, but all the part that we think of as a human brain. That uh, GABA really slows that down. And the reason that's important is that the really the definition of sleep simply means that that area of your brain is kind of off. It's sort of dissociated. William Dement, sort of the the grandfather of sleep medicine in America, defines sleep as there is a barrier between you and your environment, and you can be awakened past that barrier. And and what he means by that is that the barrier essentially means that you're that you're not paying attention to your environment. Your eyes still work, your ears still work, like all of your senses are still working. You're just not paying attention. Your brain is actually still perceiving it. It's just not processing it and thinking about it and using it for anything. And that's why you can wake people up who are sleeping with subtle things like turning on a light or 
you know, an odd noise. Like if you sleep in a noisy environment, but it's consistently noisy, like you know, people who work on ships say, and they sleep near the engine and there's a loud sort of rumble the whole night, they can sleep through that. But like some weird noise happens, which may or may not be any louder than the other noises around and that will wake you up. So your senses are still working. You're just not, you're not really processing them. And the other thing that would happen when the sun went down and you know, what, what we know from, from studying hunter gatherers that still exist today who have never experienced electricity. And most people who've been camping will know the same thing that once the sun goes down, it takes about three hours to three and a half hours to really feel sort of overwhelming desire to sleep. And that's how hunter gatherers that exist today. So it's important that they decrease the blue light in their eyes. And it's important that a bunch of neurochemical changes happen in your brain and you secrete melatonin and then you secrete GABA. Your brain secretes all of this and that slows your brain down. And then the other thing that happens when the sun goes down after about three hours is your body temperature starts to get a little lower. And so those are kind of the three prerequisites and pretty much anything that you've ever heard of as far as setting up your sleep environment or your sleep, your bedtime sleep ritual or sleep hygiene, they're all really based around those three things, right? Shutting off your brain, secreting melatonin, decreasing your body temperature. That's kind of the foundation of it. So as we talked about in the last episode, I never really set out to be a sleep guy and I wasn't dealing with people who have sleep disease. And to be clear, I'm not a board certified sleep physician, which is somebody who works with people who have sleep diseases. I am a physician that works with people to optimize their performance and sleep is one of the major issues. And that's what I do. And that's what I've been doing for the, the past 11 years. But in working with the SEALs, when I when they came to me and they were they didn't have any diseases but they weren't performing as well as they wanted to perform and as i said in the last episode it, it, after a while i sort of determined well maybe it, maybe it's these sleep drugs so in order to get them off of sleep drugs i had to come up with something to replace it with i couldn't just take away the drug that they had been using to sleep for the past three or four years and give them nothing and expect them to sleep and still like me and still listen to me. So, you know, sort of with the help, they were great patients. They were very motivated. They were great at taking notes. They were great at keeping journals. They were great at giving me feedback. As you, as you can probably guess, nobody was shy about sharing their experience. Nobody was uh, yes manning me or stroking my ego. It was all very, very serious. And, and I just got a, a lot of great feedback. And so I, I really started, this was to 2009, it really started with the vitamin D3. And that was kind of the beginning of like that Rob Wolf D3 calculator that got added to the internet or something. That was kind of the beginning of the awareness of this, you know, sort of epidemic of vitamin D3 deficiency that we had in America. And, you know, and I read a lot about that and I heard a lot about that. And I found out that it's a big player in people being able to sleep well and it's a vitamin d3 deficiency is associated with poor sleep and i'm like all right well you know the seals work at night and they sleep during the day and when they do go outside during the day to train they're covered with you know camouflage and goggles and gloves and helmets and all this stuff and so it's probably just a vitamin d3 deficiency i knew they all had vitamin d3 deficiencies because i had, i had all their labs and so I knew, I knew that to be the case i thought that would solve it and of course that was naive and it improved some it, it improved some people's life and performance but uh, nothing amazing 
further study led me to understand that magnesium is required for all vitamin D3 reactions. And it's probably, I think it is the most common mineral deficiency is magnesium. So I started giving them magnesium as well. We were giving them natural calm in those days. No, actually, I started with milk of magnesium. <laughs> How disgusting is that? But they were doing it and they were taking that and vitamin D3 drops. And then we said, well, you know, let's add a little melatonin. Everybody knows about that. And then I learned about GABA and started adding GABA. And then I thought, well, you know, let, let's see, how's melatonin made? Actually, there's, a, there's another, another guy who's been in the sleep space, maybe even longer than me. His name is Dan Party, uh, And he, he was a, a neuroscience PhD student specializing in sleep when I met him about a year into this project. And I told him what I was giving. And he's like, well, I think it's probably a little too much melatonin. And we, we had a really long conversation about that. And that, that changed my melatonin. And then I thought, well, let me make sure that they're making plenty of melatonin. So what do they need to make it? And that's tryptophan and 5-hydroxytryptophan. So that's really it. There's no trick in there. There's nothing in there that tricks your body into, tricks your brain into dissociating or, or not paying attention to where you feel like you're asleep. And that's what sleep drugs do. And after, I don't know, I want to say a year, year and a half after I got out of the SEAL teams and the entire time that I was the doctor there, but the pressure really started on me after I got out. And the SEALs just really wanted me to make a product for them so that they didn't have to go buy all this stuff piecemeal. And this is well before Amazon was a big was a big thing. And so they were having to drive all over town to get their supplements. And so it really peer pressure led me to making this supplement. I put it in that in the foil pack that it's in and made it a drink so that you know they could grab a handful of them and throw them in their pockets unlike pills and so forth, like, you know, you, you can crush it, smash it, get it wet, whatever. It doesn't make any difference. Very durable, has a very long shelf life that way. And, and, and that's where the product came from, came from. And then I'd say shortly after I kind of finalized what I was giving guys, I learned about the ability of phosphatidylserine decreasing cortisol, which is the primary stress hormone and high cortisol levels will prevent you from sleeping or prevent you from sleeping well, can interfere with sleep, let's put it that way. So I, I added, I started giving guys phosphatidylserine and when I started making my product, this is just something Rob Wolf and I chipped in on, uh, Peter Atia chipped in on it and we just, we did it on a really small budget and I said, let's just try it and see if it goes. And we really couldn't afford to put phosphatidylserine in it. So after a couple of years, we came out with a new formulation where we added some phosphatidylserine. But that's it. There's no tricks. There's no gadgets. There's no magic to it. If you think about evolutionarily it taking about three hours for your brain to build up the right chemistry to make you feel really sleepy, and very few people are ever going to spend three hours getting ready for bed in modern society. So the idea is to see if we can cause a lot of those similar changes by super concentrating some supplements. And the reason there is a very small amount of melatonin in there is just in case you haven't really started secreting melatonin. But there's not enough melatonin in there to keep you asleep all night. Your brain still has to do the work. And then we're putting in the nutrients to make sure that your brain doesn't run into any deficiencies when it's doing the work. And, you know, we're just kind of trying to... 
be realistic and say, you know, the ideal would be to spend three hours getting ready for bed. But if you're only going to spend an hour getting ready for bed or some people only 30 minutes, it's like drink this, it's a liquid, it absorbs super quickly. We can get all these, we can get all these ingredients into your brain really quickly, do a little bedtime ritual, see if it helps you get to sleep. If you can go into a, if you can go into a high quality sleep pattern immediately like when you right when you fall asleep you you start going you start going through the sleep cycles very very appropriately let's say and it's a high quality uh, what we call histogram like our measurements would like this would be a very high quality sleep then you usually sleep really well all night it's very rare that somebody starts out with really high quality sleep and then has poor quality sleep later and it's very rare that somebody starts out with poor quality of sleep and their sleep gets better through the night it's like it's kind of an all or nothing game if you if you if you start sleeping poorly the sleep cycle right before you wake up is probably going to be a pretty poor sleep cycle as well and if you start sleeping really well then the last one is going to be pretty a pretty good cycle and so that's it Okay, so many things you touched on already, and I'm trying not to go on tangents, but I have to ask you one question. I just have to. You said at the beginning the fun fact that we're not sure about the accuracy of, but the the average circadian rhythm of females versus males, which I'm definitely going to have to look into. Do you subscribe to the idea that part of the reason that people are night owls or early birds has to do with their natural circadian rhythm and that those with naturally longer rhythms are more likely to be night owls such as myself. Yes. I think that's fairly non-controversial. That's the good thing about sleep research. You know, a lot of, a lot of my colleagues in the health and wellness space, they all spar a lot about nutrition and exercise and, you know, training techniques and all, all that type of stuff. And there's conflicting, there's a lot of conflicting research and they can, and it's hard to know what's right. The good news about sleep research is that there's a very, very, very few conflicts. Pretty much everybody agrees on most things, you know, with the more geeky you get, the more nuances people would argue over. But the general concept that, some people are just wired and is and is this genetics in the sense that it's a gene that's passed down or is it something that's occurring when your brain's forming in the womb or is it something that's occurring as your brain's developing when you're a child we don't really know the answer to that but there there are definitely well documented owls and larks and and of course it's very well documented that when when the brain and bodies hormones change drastically during puberty, adolescence, there is a very, very marked shift towards being an an owl. And so if your kid's already an owl, already has a hard time maybe going to sleep by 10 o'clock, and then they get to be 12, 13, 14 years old, and they have the shift, they might have a really hard time falling asleep before midnight or maybe 1 a.m. And then you know, most places in this country, school starts around 7.30. So you can imagine how sleep deprived kids are. And they're way more sleep deprived than adults, not only because of that adolescent shift, but also also because kids need more sleep. So an adolescent should be getting you know, 9, 10, maybe 11 hours of sleep. They're averaging about six in America. Adults are averaging slightly under six, but adults only need eight. So kids are worse off. 
Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show, like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys, and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMELANIE to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMELANIE to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Okay. That's really good to hear. Total tangent, but Yeah. Well, that actually surprised me to hear you say there's not much controversy around that just because so many people, especially I think a lot of people who are naturally early birds and if they're in the biohacking health world, I don't know. There's a lot of pressure that, <laughs> I mean, I know it's maybe better, but. If, if you want to talk about, <laughs> if you want to talk about social values and social pressure, that's a different question than physiology of will somebody Given the same circumstances, if you controlled for the environment and you randomized people, would there be a dispersion across that that cohort that would be predominantly people who prefer to fall asleep an hour, hour and a half later, wake up an hour, hour and a half later in the earlier group? And that that has always happened. Every time that's been studied, that's happened. So I don't know that there's any controversy over whether that exists. As I started that with, though, as far as I know, I don't think that anybody has established essentially like what the cause of that is. And to the best of my knowledge, I've never read or heard anything about being able to alter that. It's sort of like you know, slower, fast twitch muscle fibers, right? Like you have your distribution and some people are built to be really fast and really strong. And some people are built to be really enduring. And those two don't cross over, right? They just are what they are. One's not better than the other, but you're never going to find, you know, a world's strongest man competitor also being competitive at marathons. It's just, it's a completely different type of muscle 
neurological and muscle fuel energy sources like they're just wired different and owls and larks are just wired different well that works for me (laughs) okay so you touched on a lot of things that we have a lot of questions about already so melatonin for example figuring out the right dose of melatonin to put into your supplement so is you know too much melatonin or long-term melatonin a problem For example, Margaret says, are there any negative long-term effects from supplementing melatonin? I'm curious because I have been taking it for years and also because some functional medicine providers are suggesting pretty high doses of melatonin as prevention for COVID. So also I would like to know more about, oh, so this is another question about it. She wants to know how the high doses of melatonin are thought to help fight COVID. So Melatonin, as I think most people understand, is actually a hormone. The FDA is a very strange organization, and there's not a lot of logic between behind a lot of what they do. And so you can buy melatonin over the counter here, but you can't buy estrogen or testosterone over the counter here. But they're all hormones. Vitamin D3 is a hormone. The UK and Australia, you, you need a prescription for melatonin. Again, total aside, but melatonin is a hormone, as I said, that is, and to be clear, melatonin isn't just made in your brain, it's made around your, like your, your entire body sees more melatonin during sleep. It is an immune modulator, right? So it has high antioxidant effects and one of the sort of original postulates between, behind people supplementing that. Uh, and I want to say that the, the dose was, they were, was the recommended this was maybe in the 80s or in early 90s the recommended dosage was like 50 milligrams a day or something and that it, you know that was going to prevent cancer because it was an antioxidant and the antioxidants were all the rage all the rage so anything that's an antioxidant is doing its antioxidation through the immune system through modulating the immune system some way like how specifically the virus is related the, the immune system's response to SARS-CoV-2 and how melatonin impacts that, I, I don't have the slightest idea, but I can just say that it's an immune modulator. Now, because it's a hormone, that's much different than it being, say, a vitamin or an essential nutrient or an essential mineral. Our, our bodies are very intelligent, very intelligent machines. Our brains are constantly, constantly, literally every millisecond measuring what's in our blood, what's, what's in not, not only what's in our blood, but just like what is, what is in the interstitium, the interstitium, which is the, like the fluid in between the cells may not have blood supply in there. And it's, you know, and it's responding to that and it, and that's part of the determination of whether you make more or less of something. And because our bodies are smart, if you put something into your body that your body ordinarily makes and your body see like sees that and it works, well then the sensing mechanisms in your brain are going to say well it's already there. So then the trigger to make it isn't going to happen. This is well understood with something like testosterone therapy in men. If you give men testosterone therapy for approximately a year to year or two, 
they essentially won't make much testosterone anymore. So you need to be you need to be pretty sure that you're committed to that. And it's going to be really hard for them to start making testosterone again. And they'll probably never make as much testosterone as they were making the year or two before when you started them on the hormones. So we know this to be true with hormones. It's a down regulation of hormones because hormones are constantly being adjusted. Like like I said, every millisecond, your brain is measuring, going, oh, we need more of this. We need less of that. And it's always being controlled. You know, all, all of the you know, cortisol, stress hormone, I mean, like that, that's being constantly modulated. That's changing as I'm talking. As I get more and less, more or less excited about topics, like my cortisol is changing. Like this stuff's in, always in flux. So we haven't been able, so melatonin is made in very small doses, very small amounts. It's, it's a very powerful hormone in the brain. Now, unfortunately, in order to measure it in the brain, you would have to have some way of sticking, you know, like measuring fluid, measuring fluid in the brain and in the interstitium in the blood. And so you'd have to go like, you know, have bore needles into people's brains to figure out how much melatonin is in the brain. You can do salivary assays where you're, you're like, you're, you're getting it through the saliva, but like I said, you know, melatonin is made in your viscera too, like around your organs. And so that's not the greatest measure, but actually, you know, when Dan party and I had that conversation, he said that, you know, that the human brain only makes about six micrograms between the time the sun goes down and the sun comes up. So that's over, you know, an eight to 12 hour period, your brain's going to make six micrograms. Well, if you take a five milligram tablet or even a one milligram tablet why would your brain make any melatonin doesn't has no need to right it's got uh, and not not that 100 percent of it's going to your brain but there's a real chance of this so we've never been able to prove that melatonin quantities decrease in the brain if you supplement however if it's if that's not true it would be the only hormone that anyone is aware of that didn't downregulate when you when you gave it to somebody what we call exogenously so from the outside in you put it into somebody's body that decreases every hormone we know of like everything we've ever tested every hormone we're aware of in humans that happens so we haven't been able to prove it with melatonin for the reasons i discussed however what we what has been proven in in mouse studies and mouse mice and rats is that the receptors in the brain that receive and sort of catch and hold on to and then produce the functions of melatonin, those receptors will decrease if you take melatonin on a regular basis. So let's just say that your brain, your brain, we'll, we'll just make it simple. I'm just going to choose arbitrary numbers with no units to it. So let's say in, in an, or, an ordinary night, if you lived like your ancestors, you didn't have electricity, the sun went down, your brain would start producing melatonin. And by the time you woke up in the morning, your brain would produce five, a melatonin level of five, right? So let's say that's how you're wired. You make five every night. And then we give you exogenously, we get like you, however we get it into your body, inject it, swallow it, like whatever. So we, we put melatonin into your body. And let's say we put in 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 or you know, something, or even maybe just put in five, but we put in, we're putting melatonin in your body. It's getting into your brain. Your brain's going to quit making as much melatonin almost certainly, but even if it doesn't, follow me here, like say, let's, we, we give you, you know, 
five or 10 every night, we have measured that your receptors are going to decrease. Now, if we quit giving you that melatonin and we, your brain goes back to making five, but it only has half of the number of receptors, then it's the same as your brain making 2.5 because there's not enough receptors for the, for the system to be balanced anymore. And it's going to take weeks for that to come back. So that's the downside of taking exogenous melatonin on a chronic basis is that you're, you're almost certainly decreasing your own melatonin production, which is something that tends to go down over your lifetime anyway, because the pineal gland in the back of the brain that secretes it actually calcifies and the ducts that uh, feed it calcify just meaning that it gets built up calcium around it like athlo like you know atherosclerosis or you know calcified tendon injuries or whatever that that people know about so it, it's a similar process taking it exogenously definitely going to decrease receptors most likely you're going to decrease melatonin production if you stay on the same dose every night let's say you take 5 every night and and Keep in mind, I'm saying five is an arbitrary number. Nobody go take five milligrams. That's too much. But if, you know, let's say you're, you're taking the amount that your brain would ordinarily make every night and you do that every day for the rest of your life, is that going to cause any problems? Probably not. But who knows? I mean, we, we would have to study people over their whole lives. But I would say almost certainly that if you, if you took 50 milligrams per night, it wouldn't just be your brain that would be affected. It'd be all all sorts of regions of your body that would downregulate melatonin receptors, and you would definitely run into some poor physiologic changes because you had so few receptors. Especially if you ever quit taking that melatonin, it's a slippery slope. If you're just going to take it for a few days, like you want to take it for jet lag, something like that, yeah, sure, go for it. I mean, short term, it's not going to do anything. It takes weeks to downregulate receptors. It takes weeks for them to come back. That's the reason antidepressants take, you know, they, they say they'll take, you know, anywhere from four to eight weeks to start working well. That's because it's, it's downregulating receptors. It's changing the receptor densities in your brain. It's its primary effect. And so it takes a long time for them to change. And then if you quit taking the antidepressant, then it takes a long time for them to change back. And the melatonin is just like that. Gotcha. And so what about something else that people often find knocks them out, like a dose of melatonin, and that would be Benadryl? Like I know for me, so I don't take Benadryl on like a regular basis or anything, but if if there's ever a night that I just have to sleep and sleep is not going to happen, if I take a Benadryl, like I'm good. <laughs> like I sleep. We have two questions about Benadryl. Jennifer says, I also use Benadryl to help with sleep, and I'm freaking out that this would cause negative health effects. What Sophie said, my mom's doctor said a similar thing. She said, I'd like to know the long-term effect of over-the-counter sleep aids. I read Why We Sleep, and the author talks about the side effects of prescriptions for sleep, but not over-the-counter, which my doctor said is, quote, basically Benadryl and should not have negative health effects. And I have heard that from doctors, that like Benadryl's fine antihistamines like Benadryl for sleep. Yeah, right. You may have guessed that I'm going to disagree with that statement. But first, I'd just like to give a, a little clarification as to why Benadryl is a different type of sleep drug. So when you think about prescription sleep aids, that's kind of, I mean, they're 
for various reasons, they're starting to use a lot of things as sleep aids now, including antidepressants and pain medications and things like that. But let's let's stick with the on-label use and the intended use. So there's a category of drugs called Z-drugs, which would include Ambien and Lunesta. And then there's a category of drugs called benzodiazepines, which includes things like Valium and Xanax. So both of those drugs bind GABA receptors. If you'll remember earlier, I said that's one of the main neuropeptides used to slow your brain down. Now, the most common reason that people have initiation insomnia, meaning that they can't fall asleep, it's some sort of stress. It's some sort of active mind. I'm, I'm being over, overly simplistic, but that's, that's a fair way to say that, I think. So you have this chemical, and the reason I don't like the term biohack is because I feel like the, the original biohackers were the pharmaceutical industry and everybody hates the pharmaceutical industry, but now they want to do biohacks. And so what the pharmaceutical industry says is like, hey, we've like scientists have determined that when GABA binds this receptor in sufficient quantities, that slows the brain down enough for people to go to sleep. So Let's see if we can make a molecule that will bind that GABA receptor and will do the job of GABA better than GABA so that when people can't sleep, they can take this drug and it will be more, it'll be more of a GABAergic effect than their brain could produce. And so it's going to help them fall asleep. And benzodiazepines were sort of the first, ver the first, the first version of those. Now, it turns out there's a high risk of developing dependencies on these. They suppress your respiration, your breathing, so you can overdose pretty easily on them. And it's kind of a slippery category. And then, of course, the pharmaceutical industry decided, well, we can make something better. And they made these Z drugs. And the Z drugs supposedly don't have the same type of dependency to them, but they act the same way. Now, the difference is, let's say that when GABA binds a receptor, let's say that you know, we'll, we'll call GABA binding the receptor and the receptor reacting to that, that GABA molecule and changing the chemistry of the cell and changing the neuron functions in the brain. Let's say that, that we'll, we'll give GABA the baseline of one. So when GABA binds, it has a GABAergic effect, or we'll say a GABA effect of one. When benzodiazepine binds, it has a GABA effect of a thousand. And when a Z drug binds, it has a GABA effect of 10,000. So I've already told you what happens when you, when your body doesn't need as many receptors to get the effect, you downregulate GABA receptors in the brain. Becomes a big deal because now you can't ever get off of these drugs. If it's having a thousand times more effects, then it's conceivable that you could decrease the receptors for GABA a thousand times. And then how long is that going to take to come back if you ever quit taking the drug? And how are you possibly going to get to sleep before that? Now, as I said, what GABA does is it slows down your brain and it really takes your neocortex offline. So that just simply means that you aren't paying attention and processing your sensory, but your, you know, your lizard brain, your, 
your old brain, reptilian brain, like underneath that, 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 you know, causes your body to function and is primarily concerned with reproduction and survival, that region of your brain keeps working all night, right? That doesn't slow down. And in fact, that can actually increase in a lot of instances. So if I have a thousand or 10,000 times the GABA effect in my brain, it might completely shut down my my neocortex, but that doesn't mean the rest of the chemistry in my brain has changed enough for me to go into what we call a normal sleep cycle. And if it's not a normal sleep cycle, then it's not a quality sleep cycle. So I say all of that to distinguish that from antihistamines and alcohol and other things that people may use for falling asleep. GABA has, there's, I mean, we could, I could talk for hours about the, the strange effects of the Z drugs and benzodiazepines, not just around sleep, but around all sorts of behaviors. But I won't, I don't think that's the point of this. and <laughs> I won't bore anybody with that. Now, the other thing that goes on, as I said, when melatonin when melatonin switches on, starts being produced, I cascade hundreds, thousands of chemical concentrations throughout the brain shift. And they're shifting constantly and they're constantly being sensed in different stages of sleep. They shift again. And this is like a very, very highly active process. And it's a, it's a, it's a symphony, right? Like think of this as like the biggest symphony you've ever seen. And there is a conductor, right? The conductor is a part of your brain that's sensing all of this. And it's, and you know, and it is adapting throughout the night. So one of the things that happens is when you when your brain's getting ready for sleep, it's, it decreases the production of certain neuropeptides or neurotransmitters or neurohormones. They're all kind of the same thing. It's an irrelevant distinction. And one of the primary, what we call wake promoting. So kind of, like, I think it's an important aside to, to address here. Sort of the most complete definition truly of being asleep is a lack of wakefulness. So we have chemicals in our brain and body and hormones in our brain and body that make us awake and alert. The maximum of that is the fight or flight, right? When you are in fight or flight, you are maximally awake and alert. So you have a lot of wake promoting neurotransmitters and hormones in your brain and throughout your body. And these are very wake promoting. They make you feel like being awake. So one of the first things you're brain does at night is decrease those wake promoting neurotransmitters and then it starts increasing the sleep promoting neurotransmitters such as GABA like I listed earlier so all I ha- all an antihistamine is doing is it's binding the receptors that histamine would ordinarily bind to and therefore you don't have to decrease the amount of histamine in the brain, which is a wake-promoting neurotransmitter. You don't have to you don't have to decrease it as much because you're binding you're binding all the receptors and it's having no effect. That's how the drug works. So again, you're messing with the normal physiology. And if we give you if you take an antihistamine to decrease the wake-promoting neurotransmitters in your brain. 
and then we measure your sleep throughout the night, it doesn't look the same. The sleep quality, the sleep architecture of that of that histogram where we're measuring all the different stages and how long you're in each stage and how you're cycling through that, that doesn't look normal. You have a diminished amount of deep sleep and a diminished amount of REM sleep. The Z drugs and the benzodiazepines do the same thing. Alcohol does the same thing. They all kind of have their own pattern for how they mess with sleep. But essentially, what you're doing with Z drugs and benzodiazepines is you're just turning your brain off, which doesn't mean that you're asleep at all. Like it doesn't mean you have any of the normal uh, neurological patterns that we would expect to see during sleep. Doesn't mean you have any of them. And I very often have seen almost every seal I had a sleep study done on, they had 99% stage two sleep, which means they weren't getting any deep sleep and they weren't getting any REM sleep. So that we really weren't getting any sleep. They were just unconscious because they were using sleep drugs. Alcohol really, really, really messes with deep sleep. And that's the anabolic phase, as we talked about. That's when you're rebuilding, getting stronger, smarter, clearing out waste, increasing your, your anabolic hormones like testosterone and growth hormone and thyroid and like all of your sort of hormones. And then even your appetite regulation, the hormones that control appetite regulation, all that's being reset during this anabolic phase. REM sleeps when you're dealing with a lot of a emotional categorization and memories and rehearsing things and catching new information to pathways associated with old information so that you can access this in different ways. You know, all sorts of things are going on during sleep that are really important. And if you're diminishing REM sleep or you're diminishing deep sleep, you're diminishing the quality of your sleep. Now, Taking an antihistamine and getting rid of the primary weight-promoting neurotransmitter might make you feel not awake at all, but that doesn't mean that you're asleep. If I hit you in the head with a baseball bat, you would go to sleep too, right? But it wouldn't really be sleep. Like your brain, you wouldn't have that normal pattern. Alcohol is the same way. So I, I, think I'd, I think I answered the histamine question. But I just felt that it was important to kind of talk about how they all do it and that they, they all do it differently, but they're all a trick, right? They're all a biohack. Quick question about the antihistamines, because you're saying that, you know, it might instigate a state of, of seemingly being asleep, but it's not necessarily like the good form of being asleep. But if a person is chronically sleep deprived, so they need sleep and it's time to sleep, and then they take an antihistamine and that shuts off their brain. Since they were needing sleep anyway, would that sleep then be fruitful? It's always going to be true that some sleep is better than no sleep. However, as an example, when the pharmaceutical industries first started getting successfully sued for the Z drugs, because they were essentially dissociating people's brains, people were still awake to any outside observer, they could still have conversations, they could still drive their car, they could still work, they could still do all sorts of things, but they would essentially have no memory of it because it had really shut down, it had dissociated their their brain from all the normal pathways and circuitry that, that should be going on. And so when pharmaceutical industry makes a drug they do their own research, they own the research, and then they turn in the research they want to the FDA. And then the FDA approves it or doesn't approve it. And there's some expectation, obviously, of 
honesty and morality within the pharmaceutical industry. There's some trust being put in there. And when they started getting sued, then more research came out and the, and the FDA was near the government. I don't know if it's the FDA, but um, started demanding more. Well, let's see all of the research. And it turns out that taking a sleep drug like Ambien or Lunesta, I want to say, I'm, I might not be exact on these numbers, but I'm, I'm close. I'm within a couple of percent on this. I want to say it led to people falling asleep about 13 minutes earlier than they would have if they didn't take it. And they slept for about 38 minutes longer total than they would have if they didn't take it. However, it also completely erased about 80% of REM sleep and about 20 to 40% of deep sleep. So in that instance, sleeping 40 minutes less, but having good quality of sleep would have been exponentially better, way more effective for you. So as you know, when I, when I work with clients and my whole shtick about sleep, nutrition, exercise, and stress mitigation, it's all the same. It's all lifestyle. The reason I work with people for a year is because it, I, it's really a behavioral change program, right? I mean, I'm, I'm a physician, so I can do all sorts of things. I can do labs and we can test things and measure things and do prescriptions. And like we do all the thing, all of those things as well, but it's primarily a behavioral change. And what we want to do is idealize your life to where you can get the best possible sleep that you can, well, the best possible sleep you could possibly get. Now there's an ideal way to live your life and you know, we could, we could measure that out uh, and do all sorts of metrics with, I mean, you can, you can go on forever. Like the things that you could address, dress to be what you consider to be ideal with the client's goals. But then there's a reality, like how much can you actually change your life? So ideally we would all shut off electricity three hours before we went to bed and we wouldn't put any light in our eyes and our houses would get cooler and like, you know, we would live like our ancestors. That would be ideal. Now, is that possible in modern life? Not for very many people, right? There's other obligations, there's realities to life. And so we build the lifestyle to be as close to the ideal as possible. And then in between that, there's a gap there, right? So there's the ideal, there's, the, there's what's really possible, and then there's some gap in between there. And that's what we supplement. And the supplements might be nutritional supplements. It might be gadgets that you wear. It might be uh, sort of behavioral tricks and mantras and things that we can do to, to narrow that gap so that you get the best possible sleep you could possibly get. That's the approach to getting better sleep. Taking anything as a substitute of the lifestyle modification is a terrible idea. I don't, I don't care what the substance, what the, what the supplement is. You can't say, well, I'm going to live 50% of the lifestyle. I'm going to do 50% of the behaviors I know I should do. And then I'm going to take this drug and fall asleep anyway and expect to get good sleep. It's just not possible. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense that, that that would work. That would be like saying, I'm going to eat terrible food all the time and take this drug and I'm going to be as healthy as I would be if I ate a perfect diet. Of course, you're not going to. There's no possible way that's going to work. So while I'm not saying that Benadryl is going to kill somebody or 
you know, cause some sort of catastrophic illness in their life, I am saying that it is suboptimal. It is, it is something that you could use piecemeal, like you could use it here and there. When I was a SEAL, that was well before the Z drugs. One of the things we did when we got on these really long transit flights, you know, flying down to the, you know, flying from California to the South Pacific or whatever, we'd be on these really long flights and essentially a cargo flight, essentially a cargo plane. And we would take Benadryl because, you know, who the hell wants to sit a, sit in a cargo plane for 18 hours? So intermittently doing things like that and even intermittently taking Z drugs or benzodiazepines, I don't have any problems with that. Like if there's a functional use for it and there's a plan and there's an end, there's an end game and there's a point where you're going to get off of it and it's, and it's episodic, you know, when, you know, when a sealed you know, when a SEAL's wife was widowed, I would very often give them, you know, benzodiazepines. And a lot of doctors thought that that was way too, way too risky. You know, that's way too risky for them because they could become suicidal and that's an easy drug to overdose on. And like, they can get dependent on all this other stuff. But in that instance, to me, it made a lot of sense. All right. You know, she's, she's not going to have the same grief a year from now or even two months from now that she's going to have for these first couple of weeks. And there's a lot to process. And some sleep of some quality is going to be better than no sleep at all. That's going to turn into her. It's going to make her a way worse emotional wreck than she's already going to be. Same thing if you're flying across a dozen time zones. If you fly across 12 time zones, it's at least 12 days to get your circadian rhythm realigned. And it could be up to 24 days, depending upon which way you're flying and how you're wired. So is it okay to take some sleep drugs to help you get on the same time track? You like take some sleep drugs at night and take some stimulants in the morning to help you get you know, ready to do whatever you're doing you know, to where you've traveled to. Yeah, that all makes sense. But there has to be an exit plan. So if this is something that she's doing as a preferred technique over, you know, anything what we call chronic administration, which is something that you do more than six months, I would advise against it. It doesn't lead to normal sleep. I forget the exact pattern. I want to say Benadryl decreases REM and deep sleep about the same amount. And I think it's 30 to 40%. So you're essentially losing 30 to 40% of your sleep. So for those who are currently taking prescription sleep meds, how can they get off them? Because we have questions about that. Tanya says, what steps would you take to wean yourself off prescription sleep meds such as Xanax? And then Melly, I'm smiling because my dad calls me Melly. Melly says, but this is not me. (laughs) She says how to wean off sleeping aids and maintain it long-term for those with chronic insomnia. The first thing I always tell anyone is when you're going to make a big behavioral change in your life, you need a very strong why. All behavioral change is hard. People think about alcoholism and cigarette smoking, but literally every behavioral change is a really hard change to make, especially the older the older you get. So first, really motivate yourself. Have a long list of very powerful whys why you're going to get off this drug. I can tell you, I can give you a couple right off the top of my head. (laughs) There have been studies that show chronic insomniacs, people who have insomnia for more than six months, well, more than six months out of the year, we'll say, and people who take sleep drugs chronically more than six months out of the year, they die on average 12 years younger 
than people who don't have insomnia or don't use the drugs, the sleep drugs. Now, I don't think the sleep drugs are causing anything. I think that it's just the insomnia that's leading to poor recovery, more catabolic activity, less anabolic activity, and leading to an earlier death. Essentially, aging is kind of a disease in that aging predisposes you to makes it more likely for you to die from anything and it makes you the older you get the more likely you are to have any disease and i would submit to you that the deficit between how much you can repair during your sleep before tomorrow comes is essentially aging so that delta is aging if you could if you could stay awake for 16 hours and then go to sleep and recover 100 percent then you wouldn't age. You'd wake up the next day being exactly the same. But as you get older, it gets harder and harder to recover over the full night and that accelerates. And so, you know, you're, you're getting older essentially. And so that I think that's the reason that it's associated with an earlier death is because you're just physiologically older. Now, with that said, how do you get off of that? That's just, that's just a why. Like I'm just giving somebody a why. The other thing is I would you know, put insomnia and anything you value in in a Google Scholar search or a PubMed search and just read till your heart's content about how chronic insomnia is ruining everything you value. Give yourself a lot of whys. I spent way too long explaining that, but that's what I did. So we're just going to keep rolling with it. So what I did with the seals, again, I can't just take it away because they've had, they have down-regulated receptors. Now they have decreased GABA receptors. So even if their brain is making plenty of GABA, they don't have enough receptors. So they essentially have a GABA deficiency now. And we need those receptors to come back before they're going to be able to get normal sleep, normal sleep physiology occurring from their brains. And so what I did is I would... Put them, of course, on the supplement because this, you know, the idea of the supplement, again, is to concentrate all the nutrients in your brain and to give you a little bit of melatonin and to give you some GABA so that we're getting your brain in a good state to be able to fall asleep. And then I had them titrate off of their sleep drug. So anybody who's on a sleep drug, who's been on a sleep drug chronically, of course, work with your physician. This isn't meant to be specific medical advice for anybody. But what I did is I would have a compounding pharmacy make their sleep drug into a serum and 10 drops would be, you know, as an example, 10 drops would be a full dose. So they would do 10 drops every night for a week and they would take the supplement at the same time. And then the next week they would do nine drops and then the next week they would do eight drops and then the next week and you can see it. So now it takes 10 weeks to get down to zero. So there's plenty of time for their receptors to come back. So that's how I did it. You could, you could chop up your pill, you know, you could cut your pill as long as it's not a, a sustained release pill. You could, ch- you know, chop your pill into maybe four or five pieces and do something similar to that. But again, I would, I would recommend, especially if you're on benzodiazepine, I would recommend working with your, I mean, I'd recommend working with your physician either way, but I'd just point out that coming off of benzodiazepines, if you have formed a dependency, can be very dangerous to include dying from it. So, Actually, also to that point, long-term use of sleep remedy, Jennifer and Tammy both want to know, does the sleep remedy effectiveness lessen with prolonged use? It shouldn't. No, I don't see any reason why it would. This is a nutritional supplement. All of these are normal nutrients that are, that your body is used to seeing. We're simply making sure that it's there. 
with most nutrients that you take in. Now, we do have vitamin D3, which is technically a hormone. We've brought the dosage of that down just to make sure that we don't cause people to go too high, and that does get stored in fat. So when you take this supplement chronically, then you're going to be boosting your overall vitamin D3 levels. If you, you know, if you took labs at the beginning and you took them six months later, yeah, you would have higher vitamin D3 levels. Now it's not going to keep increasing and keep and keep getting higher and higher as you take it because you're going to use your vitamin D3. And then of course I, I am putting some melatonin in there, but it's a very, 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 very tiny dusting of it. And it's meant to just be the initiator in case your brain hasn't started initiating the production of melatonin already, but it would be, it would all be consumed within a couple of hours. And then everything else in that, essentially, if you don't need it, it's, it's just something that's going to wash out. It's going to end up being processed by your liver and chopped into pieces, or it's going to be processed by your kidneys and end up in your bladder or could end up in your colon. But like within three to four hours, everything that's in the product is essentially going to be used or disposed of there's nothing in there that really keeps you asleep it all it is is something to help initiate sleep there should be no long-term decline if, if there's a decline in your sleep quality i would look first to your your behaviors have you changed your behavior do you have plans for expanding beyond the u.s jolene wants to know can you make your supplement available in the UK and Ireland, please? Desperate insomniac over here. And Julie said as well, when will I be able to get sleep remedy in the UK, please? Yeah, so we are working on, and by working on, I mean, it's on the list of things to do. <laughs> and you know how business goes. Could happen in two months. It might take two years. I don't know. Our intention is to make a melatonin free version of it. And then we could get into we could get in into Australia and the UK and New Zealand and Canada. Right now, though, all of those require melatonin to be a, a prescription, so we can't do that if we have any melatonin at all. But of course, we would have to be sure that you know the production cost would justify itself, and there would be enough people buying it. Now there is a there is a way to buy the product. There's something called third party shippers. Border Links, L-I-N-X, Border Links is one of them. I can't remember the names of them, but I've lot, you know, there are people who buy our products through a third-party shipper. So somebody like Border Links, essentially you would you order it through them and then they ship it to you in your country. I as a business cannot, I don't have the legal authority to ship things overseas, but a third party third-party shipper does and i think it just kind of it ends up on the recipient i mean if if your customs seized it for some reason or something i think you just kind of lose out but i don't know the laws of all that so i'm not encouraging anyone to break the laws but i just saying that i i know there are a significant number of people doing that hi friends okay so i'm a little bit embarrassed because i've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those, 
at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. This is a question from me. There are different forms of it. You know, you have the drink form, there's the pill form, and you were talking about the the benefits of having it in a drink for absorption earlier. Is the pill form still pretty absorbable? And also a lot of my listeners 
eat like a, a one meal a day type pattern and they eat like a lot in the evening. If that's the case, like because of absorption and having food in your stomach and things like that, would you recommend like having it before they eat or after they eat if people are eating, which might not be ideal for sleep, but if people are eating in the evening? Yeah. Well, again, I would, I would start with lifestyle. Again, this is a supplement. It's meant to supplement the gap between ideal and reality. But my best lifestyle advice to you, you know, which is scientifically validated through sleep research, is that you should go to bed on an empty stomach. That doesn't mean that you're starving yourself. It just means that whatever you've eaten has had time to leave the stomach. You can still be getting digested in the small intestine, but an empty stomach is the best way to go to sleep. If you have an empty stomach when you go to bed, then it really shouldn't matter. The capsules are going to be absorbed in your stomach. Now, whether the the pills, uh, the capsules are as effective as the liquid or not, that's up for debate. I mean, I would have to do, <laughs> I would have to do extensive, like randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled tests to figure that out. I haven't done that by customer report. There are people that claim that the capsules work a lot better for them. There are some people that claim that the capsules don't work as well for them. Definitely, if you're drinking a liquid, it's just going to absorb more quickly. How much more quickly? I, I can't say. That's going to vary from person to person. The formulation isn't exactly the same between the capsules and the and the drink just because of the quantities of of ingredients in there. It would take, I think it, I think it was going to take six pills or something to to make to just sort of make our our regular drink formulation into pills, and so we used like different, well, like we used a different form of magnesium, and we used we changed the volume by changing like the sources of several things, and got it down to three capsules, which I think is reasonable. I don't, I just don't feel like people would be excited about taking six capsules a night. So, but the other advantage to the capsules is that you, it's easy to titrate. You can say, you can take three. And if you're, you know, if you're a 90 pound woman and you take three and it's like really just knocks you out and you feel too groggy in the morning or something because you just like, you essentially just bottomed your cortisol out and got a ton of really great deep sleep that was really regenerative and restoring, but your cortisol hadn't come back up to a normal level by the time you woke up in the morning, you might feel a little tired and you might prefer to take two if two works enough. And if you're a bigger guy or you have difficulty, you could go to, you could go to four, you could go to five, you could do whatever you want. With the capsules, it's a little easier to do that than with the, than with the liquid. So for my listeners who are following an early eating window and and are in the quote fasted state in the evening, the unflavored capsules have nothing that in Jen Stevens and I's opinion would break the fast. So interestingly, we actually have capsules because of a collaboration with Whole30. So Melissa Hartwick's a, a friend of mine and she liked the product. Or actually, I think there were some girls who were working, some women who were working with her who really liked the product. And so she and I started talking about it. But then as part of the Whole30, you can't have any sweeteners and you can't have any flavorings and your food is like really strict. And we have, of course, we have natural flavorings in there, but we have we have stevia in there and we have some xylitol in there. And so neither one of those were allowed. So we said, well, 
you know, let's see if we can make it into a capsule formulation. And that was really kind of the motivation be- be- behind doing that. And now, ironically, I think the capsules are actually outselling the tea, which it really bums me out because I, th- I think the tea is such a good idea because of the fast absorption, but also because it's part of a sleep ritual and it reminds you that you need to take time to get ready. I use the capsule as part of my ritual. Well, that's fine, but you're somebody who's very disciplined around sleep. So if somebody's not really disciplined around sleep, but they have to take the time, you know, like I make my sleep tea with boiling water because then it just seems more like tea and it, I, it tastes better to me. Like, like the warmer the water, the sweeter it tastes. I don't think it ever really gets overly sweet. And, you know, and I've been keto for you know, several years and it, and I have a high sensitivity to sweetness. So it, it's not overly sweet even uh, with boiling water, but I, I do that. Like, you know, I put on my, I put my tea kettle on and I start boiling the water and I get my cup out and I get my little satchel, satchel out. And then I, you know, and it's, and it's part of the process of getting ready to go to bed and slowing your brain down, being aware that there's something about to change, you know, that you're, you're consciously making a choice to shift your behavior to get ready for bed. I, it's just my fear that people are going to, you know, sit down and work at their computer until nine fifty nine, and then go jump in their bed and pop their capsules and lay down to be in bed by 10, you know, 15 minutes later, they're going to be going, why am I not asleep yet? And then, you know, the stress hormones are going to start climbing up. And so that, that's my concern with it. But if, you know, if people like them, then they like them. It's again, it's the difference between ideal and, you know, some people, they don't want to have the drink because then they have to get up and pee more. But I don't think that's a super strong argument because, I mean, you don't have to mix it with eight ounces. You can mix it with, you know, three ounces or four ounces. I just have a hard time believing that four ounces of water is going to make a big difference in, in your in your bladder but there are people who take capsules for that reason you know, so they just don't want to take they just you know by habit that's usually men you know it's their prostate gets larger they pee more frequently and so they just don't drink liquid after kind of a certain time in the night to prevent them having to get up so yeah there are reasons to do it we had two questions about that joanne says she started needing to wake up to pee every mm-hmm. night the last few months, what causes this? She says she's eliminated caffeine and alcohol and limits liquids after 2 p.m. And then Alyssa said, I need this answer too. This has been happening to me the last year and I'm early 30s, so it's not perimenopause related. My first guess would simply be a higher sort of stress load in life. You know, some some sort of significant change that's changed sort of the basal amount of stress that you're carrying around. As I said, like the absolute lowest point of stress hormones in your body is during deep sleep. And then when you first go to sleep, that first sleep cycle, and a sleep cycle is 90 to 120 minutes, that first sleep cycle is like 90% deep sleep. And so you have really, really low stress hormones. And then your cortisol, your stress hormones gradually creep up over the course of the night and they get to a point in the morning where if you didn't have an alarm clock, they would be high enough to wake you up because cortisol is one of the wake promoting hormones and epinephrine and norepinephrine that come out sort of simultaneously. Those are wake promoting. And so that's all part of the normal rhythm. Now what's happening when you have the really low levels of cortisol 
in your deep sleep and, you know, let's just say the first half of the night, you have super, super minimal levels of stress hormones. One of the things that happens when you're asleep is that your kidneys actually slow down. The production of urine decreases so that you can sleep for, you know, 10 hours. And most people don't go 10 hours during the day without having to go to the bathroom. So that's sort of a... It's sort of a normal built-in mechanism, but if you have higher stress hormones, then you're not quite as deep sleep, so you aren't having quite the same physiologic changes. Your kidneys not, might not be slowing down as much as they usually do. Now, again, the, the one woman said she didn't think it was perimenopausal, which is possible. There could be some hormonal shifts that are somewhat similar to that. I'd be getting way off on tangents with zeoestrogens and different supplements and things like that. I think that's too far to go. So I would, I would first guess with the, my first guess would be this an increased stress load. And for that, I would recommend a completely free PDF on my website that called stress free sleep guide, and you can download it and it gives you an entire program on how to create less stress in your body while you're sleeping. So for listeners, the show notes for this episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash sleep questions two, the number two. We'll put links to all of that there. We talked about this on the last episode, but you do have a new formulation for children, which is really exciting. Would you like to like briefly just say what the, the difference is for that, for the kids formula? There's a lot less of everything in there. There are a couple of categories that are kind of taboo with clinical research. Is we try very hard not to do research on children. We try very hard not to do any research on pregnant women, just because it, you know, it could have such long-lasting consequences as to be un- unethical. However, what there there is literature on children who have diseases that are related to poor sleep quality or poor or short sleep duration or uh, difficult, like initiation insomnia, difficulty falling asleep, and going through the research on that and the, and the different supplements that have been used for things like kids with Down syndrome sometimes have sleep disorders. Uh, obviously, kids with ADHD, whether they're on stimulants or not, can have so there. So there has been some nutritional research, and we basically extrapolated out of that, like what's proven in the literature to sort of be about the right dose for a child to help them sleep. And so we we just kind of extrapolated from that data and tried to build the most robust product we could, while still being on the careful side of things. Although there's there's nothing risky or dangerous in there. It's just like, I don't want to overload anything. I don't like, I don't want to overload you with vitamin C or vitamin B or like, I like, there's nothing I want to overload you with. So, you know, we basically designed it to kind of be like right in the middle of the childhood. So if young, if younger kids are taking it, it, it shouldn't be super physiologic, meaning more than your body would ordinarily see. And if, Older kids or older, larger kids are taking it, it should still be adequate. So we're, you know, that's basically it. And then the, 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 the flavoring is different. When we very first started, actually before I even started this company, when I first took on the project of doing this, it wasn't even sleep cocktail yet. It didn't have its name yet, but this, you know, this is what led to the sleep cocktail. And I, you know, I was 
I was figuring all of this out, out as I went. I was a doctor. I don't, you know, like obviously I didn't have any training on how to get supplements produced or whatever. And so we would get these, we would get all these sample flavors from these production houses and I would just line up my family and like have everybody taste it. How many different flavors would you try? Was watermelon one of them? We probably went through like eight, eight different samples or something. Can I vote for watermelon? You can vote for watermelon, but uh, I'm not sure that we'll make it, but you can vote for it. My daughter, so my daughter's the youngest, and I'm going to say she was probably around probably around 10 years old when this was happening. So then they would have been like 10, 12, and 14, but all three of them loved the berry. And I just wanted everybody to take a sip because I knew, you know, this could, <laughs> this could make them sleepy. And like, it was the middle of the day, it was like two o'clock here, you know one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon or something. I mean, we did this several times and, and the kids all just loved the berry. Like it was just, it was so good. Like, Oh, my daughter was like, this is so good. You should call it berry bedtime. And it's, I love it. And, and, and so then the funny thing was, you know, we had all the, all the sample glasses out of my, and just my wife and my kids and I, and sometimes uh, some people I was working with, my friends, whatever, we'd all be tasting, we'd all be tasting them, have them all lined up on the counter. And then the kids would just fight over the berry one. They wanted to fit like, you know, they both, they'd all kind of fight over the berry one and, and that one would go away. It, every time we did the taste test, like that one was gone immediately. And then the funny thing is that they would all go take a nap afterwards. So I was like, all right, Note to self, kids really like berry flavor and it obviously works. So that, that was a full adult dose in one glass that three kids all drank out of and then they still all took a nap. So it turned out to be okay. And then really Shayla, my the number two in my company, my COO, she was really the, the push to actually get the child's formulation out. She just had her first baby 18 months ago and, you know, that mother nesting instinct has been strong with her since she got pregnant and she's always really been passionate about a kid's project. And so I said, well, I don't really have time to do it, but if you want to push it, you can push it. And so she pushed it and that's, that's how it hit the market. And we, and we just started selling it, I think 10 days ago, two weeks ago, something like that. Well, congratulations. It's really exciting. For listeners who want to get their own, you can go to melanieavalon.com slash sleep remedy, and you can use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off anything, which is very exciting. And I did confirm, by the way, that it'll work on that. Good for you. <laughs> we know it would have happened if you would have left that to me. So it was a wise choice. One last question about the sleep remedy specifically, and then it kind of leads into another topic that we have a lot of questions about. So Carrie would like to know, does sleep remedy work for night shift workers since their circadian rhythm is disrupted? And then I have quite a few questions about shift work. So everybody knows that they're getting represented. Carrie says, I hardly ever get more than five hours of sleep due to working full-time overnight. I do get an hour or two nap before going to work. And on the weekends, I try to sleep normally overnight, which half the time doesn't work. I've been doing this for over a year now. My question is, how much damage am I doing to my body doing this? Marilyn wants to know how to deal with irregular work schedule, disrupting sleep. Ashley says she works seven days of 12-hour night shifts. Do you have any tips for quality sleep during the day and adjusting back to a day shift? Leilani wants to know if you have any ideas to help shift workers who need to sleep during the day. And Beth wants to know, 
ways to help bounce back between nighttime and daytime sleeping. So people who are shift working and are all over the place, can they use sleep remedy? And just in general, what can they do to support their sleep with that type of schedule? That is by far the most common question that I get with most of the audiences that I that I lecture to. Not professional sports teams because they usually have control. Although baseball, they have night games, and so they have some issues around that as well. Definitely law enforcement, first responders, and you know, healthcare providers who work at hospitals and emergency rooms and such. By far the most common. No, I will... I will preface this with my very unpopular answer is that two plus two is always going to be four and I cannot make it anything different than that. And, you know, the World Health Organization has classified shift work as a type 2A carcinogen, which is the same category that cigarettes are in, meaning that almost certain it increases your risk for cancer. However, it would be unethical to do research on it, so we'll never have the proof that there's cause and effect, but we're sure as we can be without doing unethical research to find out. So with that said, I would tie that to what I said earlier about people who take sleep drugs or have chronic insomnia. They have a higher risk of all diseases and they die younger. The same is true for shift workers. I think it stands out. I think cancer stands out more than anything else because it's often protracted and tragic and there's a long narrative associated with the life after the cancer diagnosis, obviously, which may or may not kill them. But anyway, it, 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 I think it scares people and stands out more. But it's actually true for cardiovascular disease as well. If you look at firefighters and law enforcement, these people tend to die of heart attacks, not only more frequently, but also much younger. So again, the shift worker number is around the insomnia number. It's on average, you're you're going to die 10 to 12 years younger than people who don't do shift work. Now, you could have great genetics and you're going to live to 90 or maybe you're going to live to 100 and you do shift work and now you live to 90. You know, I'm not saying that you can't have a long life. I'm just saying that it's almost certain that it's going to decrease your lifespan if you do that for a very protracted period of time. For the reasons that I said earlier, you essentially you essentially aren't recovering. So you're sort of you're physiologically aging faster. And so while you have fewer chronological years, your physiology looks like somebody 10 to 12 years older. And so on average, you would die 10 to 12 years older. You would get diseases, sort of end-of-life diseases, more likely, you know, more earlier in your life, and you'd be more likely to have those. And then, of course, there's other there's other things associated with that. So I'm not, it's not 100% the sleep. So with that said, that's horrible news, and I don't want to be Debbie Downer. With that said, my advice is to knowing that, is to make sleep your primary concern, your primary, like your top priority. And I say this all the time when I'm talking about people optimizing their lifestyle for performance, but for, for the shift worker out there, yes, performance, any type of performance, like your 
how good of a spouse you are, how good of a parent you are, how good you are, your job, your physical performance, your strength, your endurance, all of these things, like all of this performance, yes, tied into there. So yeah, performance issues. However, you are doing something that has a high risk of decreasing your lifespan or increasing your disease risk. So make your lifestyle as perfect as you can possibly make it. Sleep, again, the priority, but also eat the very best diet you can possibly figure out a way to eat consistently. Exercise in a very smart way, in a very regular way, stay fit, control your stress at all costs. You are running around with higher stress hormones all the time if you're a shift worker, not just while you're not just while you're working, but because you're sleeping outside of your circadian rhythms and you're very unlikely to be a shift worker and be getting enough quality sleep to repair, you're you're going to use your stress hormones as a compensatory technique to have enough energy to get through your day. So a couple of things to do. So there's more than there's more than one physiologic sort of system going on when we talk about circadian rhythm. But circadian rhythm is usually like the broad term that we're using to describe the sleep-wake cycle and basically adjusting your sleep-wake cycle to be aligned with the time zone that you're in, right? But there's a lot more to it than that. And so as an example, the cells in your liver, kidney, heart, lungs, muscles, everything, those cells all behave slightly differently during the daytime than they do while you're asleep during the nighttime. Now, this is true whether you're asleep at night, like working at night and sleeping during the day or sleeping at night and working during the day or, you know, however you do it, there are there are overarching rhythms every cell has their every cell in your body has its own clock and there are physiologic shifts throughout there, there are like cycles and this is sometimes called the ultradian rhythm which is is broader than the circadian rhythm but if you are going to use shift work my sort of glib answer which isn't meant to be disrespectful is the first thing i would do is try to figure out a way not to do shift work or you know to get out of it as soon as possible that's not always possible there you know obviously there are there are professions that just need to be working at night and and society depends on them and there's nothing we can do about it and it has to happen that doesn't mean that one person and i see this very I see this very commonly in law enforcement is people work night shift their entire career. That's definitely worse than cycling on and off of shift work. I've consulted with things like emergency emergency room staff and they have a rotating schedule so that you're, yeah, you know, they, they basically break the day up into eight hour shifts and then you, you cycle through these shifts and they have all sorts of ways of doing it. And I don't know where they're, where or why they do it the way they do. But as I said earlier, if you fly across 12 time zones, it takes a minimum of 12 days to align, up to 24 days to align, to recapture your circadian rhythm, to be aligned with where you have flown to. So the same is true for shift work. If you if you have completely inverted your schedule to where you're working at the exact time you would ordinarily be sleeping, then you're 12 hours out of phase. So if you start working this night shift, it's going to take you 12 hours or it's going to take you 12 days at a minimum to 
get the best possible alignment of your circadian rhythm, the closest to your normal physiology that you can possibly get. It's going to take at least 12 days and up to 24 days. However, the longer you do this, obviously it's suboptimal sleep, which is leading to less anabolic activity, more catabolic activity. It's going to be harder. It's going to be harder on you physiologically. And that's always going to be true. Just There's just no way around it. Again, two plus two is always going to be four. However, the mitigating things that you can do, it's like if you can talk your leadership into saying, I want to do a month of this shift and then, you know, and then a month of the opposite shift. So then I get to at least get a month of recovery before I go back on that. And the places that have the eight hour shifts, you know, the way they cycle through them, they're, they're going to be out of phase. So they, you know, they need, you know, they need at least a week on those schedules to align and, and oftentimes two weeks. So I usually recommend uh, a two week phase of shifts. You're working nights for, two weeks and you're working the midday shift for two weeks and you're working mornings for two weeks and the early shift or whatever. And then that's at least giving you some recovery time. And then ideally you have the mo- like the most recovery right before you go back into night and uh, onto night shift. This is something that's counterintuitive to people, which for the life of me, I can't understand why, but I've, I've asked the question enough to know that it is counterintuitive to people. But if I, if I told you that I was going to starve you next month, and I somehow have control over what you eat. And then it's like next month, you're, I'm going to cut your calories into a third. And that's what you're going to do for the whole month. The smart thing to do this month would be to eat a lot, right? <laughs> like to store, to store as many calories as you possibly could, not practice starving. And the same thing is true for sleep. So same thing is true for exercise. If I said, you know, next month, you're going to have to run 10 miles a day. Well, what would you do this month? Start building up your mileage to where you can where it doesn't kill you to run 10 miles a day. But when I tell people, you know, next month I'm going to sleep deprive you every day of the month, uh, they think they should practice sleep deprivation. No, <laughs> get, get be as healthy and robust as you possibly can. So when you're getting good quality sleep, and especially when you're combining that with good nutrition and good exercise practices and good stress control mitigation practices, you are, you're the most resilient. So now you can handle the insult of the sleep deprivation much better. That's why younger people can handle sleep deprivation better than older people because they're more resilient. They're more robust. They're more hormonally robust. They're more anabolic. They're less catabolic. They can recover a lot faster from anything, including sleep deprivation. So that's one piece. So practical application of that, again, I would talk to the leadership and see if you could get some smart scheduling rotations. If that's not possible, it's just not possible. That's the way things are. Now, the second most unpopular thing that I say is that the best thing for you after working your night shift is to get to sleep as soon as you possibly can after your shift. And the reason that's so unpopular is because most, well, not most, but a lot of shift workers, their lives are sort of set up to where they're coming home sort of as their family starting their day. And that's, that's like their time with their family. But if they just came home and went to sleep, then they would miss that. And then they would get up later and get ready in the evening and go to work and never really see their family. So they don't like that idea. Find a work around that if you can. It, You know, if you can't, you just can't. The third thing is, again, you were just going to idealize everything. So just go, like, just 
take it to an absurd extreme. Like you need to be sleeping in a cold, dark cave that is as quiet as it could possibly be. And the bed is as comfortable as it could possibly be. Don't have a crappy mattress. I mean, anything that's going to interfere with your sleep, like go ahead, spend $10,000, $15,000 on a great mattress so that you have the ability to get great sleep. If you if your house isn't cool enough or if you sleep hot, you know, get a chili pad, get an Uler, like put the investment into there. Wear earplugs if you have to. If you live in a noisy environment, make your windows Kentucky trailer park dark. I mean, like, you know, aluminum foil if you have to, like whatever you do, like build the perfect sleep environment. Decrease the blue light in your eyes at least three hours before you're going to go to bed. So if you, let's say if you are going to go home and go to sleep right after your shift work, Start wearing blue blocking glasses three hours before you go home or a couple of hours before you go home if you're going to be home for about an hour or before you go to sleep or something like that. And then I would recommend actually to these people to take supplementation because your body is simply more taxed. It has, it has some physiologic limitations. You know, it's not as anabolic, it's more catabolic. It's going to have a harder time recovering and absorbing nutrients and all sorts of things. So I would recommend, you know, supplementation across the board, but definitely anything that's going to improve the quality of your sleep. If, you know, if, if you're only going to get five or six hours and there's just no way around that, well, then the difference between getting a perfect five hours of sleep and a mediocre five hours of sleep, that's going to be night and day. I mean, that's going to be a huge difference in your performance and your longevity and your disease risk. So all of those things I would put equal importance on, but again, it all hinges on the very first thing that I said is that you have to realize how critical this is and make it your top priority and realize that this isn't a luxury. This isn't something you're doing because you've heard some guy on a podcast talking about it. Like this is your life. This is, you know, this is everything about you. This is your performance. This is your longevity. This is your disease risk. This is everything that you value is hinging on this. And you've, you're, you're like, you're starting, you're starting behind. you like, you've already set yourself up to be deficient in this. So do everything you can. The other thing that I always recommend is take as many naps as you possibly can. I don't care if they're five minute naps, 20 minute naps. If you can get an hour and a half, great. Like I don't, depends on what your job is and how things are set up. Take as many naps as you possibly can. Again, if you sleep five hours and you take three hours worth of naps over the course of the 16 hours you're awake, it's not the same as sleeping eight hours. It's not it's not ideal, but it's closer. I mean, it's much better. And that's my advice for shift workers. Oh my goodness. So many things you touched on. Okay. Well, really quickly, that blew my mind that it took 12 days to fix things. That's really upsetting. And that was with jet lag or traveling, like completely changing your... Yeah. So essentially every time zone, to be honest, I'm being on the dramatic end of it. It can be as fast as half a day. But most of the research agrees on a day to slightly more than a day for every time zone you you cross. So if you change one time zone in the U.S., it's at least a day to get back on schedule, possibly up to two days. You know, if you go from California to New York, it's a minimum of three days, up to six days. Crazy. Well, you talked about a lot of the quote... <laughs> biohacking things that we can do to help with 
fixing the, the whole sleep situation. And I often wonder if I am like the craziest person out there when it comes to using all the things to try to regulate my circadian rhythm. But I think it's pretty valuable because I can definitely speak to what I do find really effective. And you touched on a lot of them. So I wanted to provide some resources for listeners like the mattress, the chili pad. I actually had on Tara Youngblood on this show. She's the founder of Chili Pad and they make a, she was really great. She, she also said that like early birds and night owls are things. So that was that was a good moment. But if listeners would like to get their own chili pad, it's basically a mattress that cools you down. And I use mine every single night of my life. A mattress topper. Yeah. A mattress. Yeah. Yeah. It goes on top of your mattress. It's amazing. Do you have the, which one do you have? I, I have both, but I prefer the Uller. The, the Uller is quieter and I'm, I'm, I'm a bit sensitive around noise with sleep. I have the chili pad. That's a little bit louder. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not drastic. I, I think it's about 10% louder or something. Might be time for me to try it either way. The Uller is kind of sleeker looking too. And my bedroom is very minimalistic. So it kind of blends in. So that like they're either one is great. I find almost everybody who tracks their sleep can point to a very beneficial change from using the chili pad. I can't imagine not using it now. I think Peter Atia on a podcast said that it doubled his Oh wow. his deep sleep as measured by the aura ring. So that's significant. And I, and maybe I made that up. Maybe he said it increased it by 50%, but I remember it just being drastic and me going, "Wow, that's a huge change." Like I don't get that big of a change, but I get a big change. It was one of the things that I started using it and I was like, how, just how was I ever not using this? And the codes for it are really confusing. They're not my normal like Melanie Avalon code. So listeners in the show notes, I'll put the codes because I think you can get between 15 and 20% off. So I'll put links to that in the show notes. And then the blue light blocking glasses are huge. I, I can't imagine my life not using them. And I think I told you this the first time we recorded that I use three different like... <laughs> Yes, you did tell me that. You progress throughout the day with them. Every night I progress through three different versions. And I thought I was being really special. Like I thought I had, I had come up with this whole concept of like starting with clear ones and then progressing to yellow ones and then progressing to red ones. And then I met Andy Mant, the founder of Blue Blocks, and his company actually makes all three options. So that was really exciting. And I have mine on right now. So here's here's an interesting aside, or at least I think it's interesting, so I'm going to interrupt you. When I first started doing this, when I first started lecturing about all of this stuff, there wasn't a single company out there making blue blocking glasses yet. So what I was recommending to people to do is buy gaming glasses, because that's how gaming glasses work. It's the same thing, because they're trying to reduce eye fatigue and blue light's the most refractive and so it distorts your vision the most by making glasses that block out the blue light it sharpens your vision and decreases the fatigue of your eye muscles just i thought that i just think that's really neat and now there's companies all over the place doing it and there's lots of great products well the funny thing is so when i started doing it i was using the uvex brand and they were not advertised for blue light blocking like they're for people in some industry where they need these glasses i don't know what they're for Shooting glasses off often are the same thing. I used to use something called Eagle Eyes, which was a shooting is a shooting glass, but it had the same argon it had the same argon coating on the lens that the gaming glasses did. So it blocked blue light. To what degree? I don't I don't know. It definitely wasn't engineered for it like like the products are now engineered for it. They're much better. 
Exactly. Like that's the point. The funny thing is with the UVEX was when I first started using them, because I've been using them for years. Well, I've started using them years and years ago. Now the exact same glasses, they're like on Amazon, they're advertised them as being for blue light blocking. Like for this reason, they like changed their branding. That said, the re- when I had Andy Mant on the podcast, I think I've had him on two or three times. He he actually started that company because he found such a benefit from blue light blocking glasses, but then he actually went and tested all the different glasses that were available with, with some sort of like light tester thing and realized they weren't actually blocking the wavelengths completely or what they need to be blocking. So that's why he founded the company. There is a mutual friend of ours who has an entire video on blue blocking glasses where he has a blue light and a white light and he and he measures how much they all block and that's Anthony Beck. I don't know how to find it. I mean, I guess YouTube Anthony Beck and blue blocking glasses or something. I'm not sure if he gets into name brands that much, but he shows kind of the differences between there's always going to be unscrupulous people and there are definitely glasses out there that that really don't block blue light at all that are sold as blue blue blocking glasses. So it's one of those things like mattresses, you know, you're just going to have to go with quality. It's not like you need to buy them a hundred times. You're just going to buy them once and they're not, they're not overly expensive. So exactly. Cause I get so many questions saying, can people use like off brand, like really cheap ones? I'm like, well you can, but I don't know what it's doing. And I, I just know, from working with Andy that, I mean, they do what they say. And I agree. I wanted to touch on that. So I'm glad you brought it up again. The mattress, like you spend a third of your life on it. So if you're going to invest, I mean, what else do you spend a third of your life on? So my, my grandfather, the only positive male role model in my life as a child, he had just a lot of really wise, great sayings. And one of the things he told me I have no idea why he would tell a seven-year-old this, but he, he was he was telling it to me. He said, "He said uh, never go cheap on mattresses or shoes because if you're not in one, you're in the other." Wait, that's really great. How have I not heard that before? So comfortable shoes and a comfortable mattress. Like you're always in one of those. I go barefoot a lot, though. In any case, listeners, you can get fifteen percent off Blue Blocks. It's at their website and. I wish they would spell it different because it's it's kind of hard to remember, but it's B-L-U-B-L-O-X dot com and the coupon code Melanie Avalon, I think, yeah, gets you 15% off. And another really cool thing that they do is they donate a pair of glasses to somebody in need for every pair that you buy. So that's really exciting. So as far as like the most effective things, for me, it's the blue light blocking, the chili pad, juve red lights at night to light everything. And again, the code for that is Melanie Avalon. <laughs> and then the sleep remedy. It's pretty much my like four things. That's an expensive light source. <laughs> I know, but it's like, <sighs> but it has so many other uses as well. <laughs> to be clear, red light is is the only light that has no blue light in it. So if you can just get red light, you don't like, you know, submarines and ship if you go to the bridge of a ship at night like that's always it's always red light because it maintains your light vision or your dark your nighttime vision this is true but then juve comes with the benefit of all the benefits of red and near infrared light there juves are really cool i'm not saying they're not they're really cool they they could be prohibitively expensive especially if the people are going to go out and buy a ten thousand dollar mattress now and, and a chili pad and everything else like i didn't even talk about the canopy 
Right. Your EMF canopy. Start with sleep remedy, blue light blocking glasses, and a good quality mattress and chili pad. Yes. That's a lot. That's actually not terrible. Chili pads aren't very expensive. Blue black glasses aren't very expensive. Sleep supplements are not very expensive. I would say if you have to start with two things, start with the blue light blocking glasses and the sleep remedy. That would be my advice as well. And then chili pad. Yeah. And then juve. I would say then mattress. Oh, I forgot mattress. Oh, this is complicated. Oh, wait. And we forgot blackout curtains. Yeah. But you, like I said, you can, you, you, can use, you can use aluminum foil if you have to for your windows, like anything to block out the light. You can't afford blackout curtains. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives, dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. I will put a link in the show notes to the curtains that I bought. They're not that expensive. They're on Amazon. Friends, you will get these curtains and they will change your life. They're like luxurious hotel curtains and they come in different colors. And they're so amazing that my co-host Jen Stevens of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast was on the fence about like how important, and that's actually a question for you. Like even if there's just like a tiny little bit of light at night, does that make a difference because for me it makes a huge difference and then she attested to that after she got blackout curtains there's definitely individual sensitivity to that however i would say that it all depends on whether or not it's enough light for you to sense with your eyes closed because if your eyes are closed presumably and you and you can't you cannot tell when you close your eyes, that the light's there. And you would only know that by re- being able to remove it. So when I traveled a lot, I would go to these hotel rooms and I, and like, I, I, I had obviously for years, I've had like the ideal setup with 100% blackout and, and all of that. And I would go to these hotels and the light would come under the door and there would be a light on the smoke alarm and there would be a light on climate control and some other, the phone would have a light and I'd I'd have to, because I was just so, I'd made myself so sensitive to it by, by being so pedantic about 
my sleep environment that I really didn't have a choice. And I, so I'd, I had to turn off all the lights and then walk around the room and figure out what all was covered. And I actually traveled with a roll of aluminum foil because that's the easiest thing to cover up lights with completely. And you just like put a wad of aluminum foil over things. But Wait, what about black electric tape? That's what I use. That seems like that would work in a lot of situations too, yeah. And it sticks. It does. Brilliant. On the flip side of things, a topic that I meant to touch on earlier when we were talking about compounds, but caffeine. We have some questions about caffeine. I almost covered that when I was talking about weight promoting weight promoting neurotransmitters, but go ahead. Well, the interesting thing is the questions that came in about it are actually about it supporting sleep. So... Yeah. So Ashley says, I know some people who have caffeine to help them fall asleep. Alyssa says, I wish I could remember where, but I've read that several people drink coffee right before bed and it's improving or neutral to their sleep as long as they go to bed quickly within 30 minutes, one hour from consuming the caffeine. I'm curious how this actually works physiologically. I would think it would just wake you up again once it kicks in. And then Damon says, my question is, if someone falls asleep while highly caffeinated, does that mean they are immune to caffeine? And then my, my Melanie's question is caffeine. Cause I went through a period where I was like, I'm going to get rid of every single thing that's possibly influencing my sleep. And it's just going to be all natural. So I got rid of caffeine. I got rid of alcohol. I got rid of like every single factor, but now I kind of feel like having caffeine in the morning gets you started and makes you more energetic early. And so then you are more tired at night. So caffeine, what's the deal? So interestingly, the most difficult sleep patient that I've ever encountered was in the, in the SEAL teams. And ironically, he now works for me in this company. He's, he's been out of, out of the SEAL team for a long time. And he's still to this day is exactly what you just described. Rob Wolf would just say, you know, there's paradoxical responders in the world and that's just the way it is. And that just means like some people will take a stimulant and it makes them tired and some people take a depressant and it makes them energized. I hate to be that simplistic with it, but I don't know the mechanism. So I kind of have to be that simplistic with it. But there are, there definitely are people who drink caffeine at night, drink coffee at night, and it makes them fall asleep. Now, the reason this is so confusing is because of how caffeine works. We talked about ATP last time. Didn't we talk about this in, the, in just the podcast before this? Anyway, we're going to cover it again if we did. So every cell in your body uses a form of energy called ATP. So just think of like every cell in your body is its own little organism and it, all, it has its own fuel tank and it has a fuel tank full of something called ATP. And this is the energy it uses to do whatever work that cell does, depending upon what kind of cell it is. Now, ATP stands for adenosine, adenosine triphosphate, which means there are three phosphate groups on it. And every time you cleave a phosphate group off, it releases a bunch of energy that can be used to do cellular functions. And so you break down ATP into ADP, adenosine diphosphate, and then AMP, adenosine monophosphate. And then essentially, you, and then eventually you break it down to just A. It's just adenosine. And adenosine builds up in that respect as sort of the is almost a waste product inside of your cells. And then it gets out of the cells and it's in your interstitium and like the, the fluid and spaces between the cells and your brain senses it. You have receptors in your brain to sense adenosine. 
And the reason for that is because if you've taxed your brain, if you've taxed your body and your brain to where you've produced this glut of adenosine, that's a mechanism. That's one mechanism for your body and your brain to say, we need to recover. We need to stop what we're doing. We need to sleep, recover, restore, regenerate, replenish fuel sources, get rid of waste products, all these types of things, get ready for to do this again tomorrow. But right now we're kind of exhausted. So adenosine builds up throughout the day. And what caffeine does is it blocks adenosine receptors. It binds the adenosine receptors and it doesn't allow the adenosine to bind the receptors, but it doesn't have any effect on the adenosine receptors like adenosine does. So maybe on these people, their receptors are having some sort of activity to the caffeine molecule itself. I don't know. Again, I, I, total speculation. I don't know the mechanism of that. I have a theory that I've heard. The repeat people say that it supports metabolism. And so then you're able to, like, it supports your liver and it helps with, like, blood sugar issues during the night. I don't know how that would explain initiation of sleep. So, th- so let me finish my thought. As the adenosine builds up, that's what we call sleep pressure. So adenosine under that definition, as we talked about earlier, that would be a sleep-promoting neuropeptide, like a protein structure in your brain that promotes sleeping behavior. And that's actually what causes the sleep pressure. And, And sleep pressure is the desire and the physiologic need, perception that you need to go to sleep and recover, that builds up. The more adenosine you have, the more that builds up. And if you're awake for 18 hours, it should be high enough to sort of make you feel, you know, should, should really make you feel like sleeping. If it's 24 hours, it should definitely make you feel like sleeping. If you go out to like 72 hours, the pressure's so high that you literally can't stay awake. Like you, you, you could be, you could be at work sitting in your chair to, in a meeting doing something really important and you'll still fall asleep because the sleep pressure is just too high. Now, men tend to have more muscle mass than women. Muscle mass has a much higher metabolic consumption of ATP because obviously muscles are moving all the time. So the more muscle mass you have, the more adenosine you build up. However, although an average size female and an average size male, there might be a 30% difference in muscle mass, but there's probably only a five to maybe 10% difference in their brain sizes. So how much adenosine is in their brain and how much sleep pressure are they getting by having this extra muscle mass, which is why I think that men tend to have what we call maintenance insomnia and and females tend to have what we call initiation insomnia. So men often have so much adenosine, they have so much sleep pressure that they can go to sleep no matter how stressed out they are because they're just tired, they're just exhausted and their brain's just saying, you gotta sleep. And so they go to sleep they have their first deep sleep cycle that clears out a bunch of the waste products, gets rid of a lot of the adenosine, gets rid of other things, starts replenishing the brain, the neurons a little bit, and other cells in your body start recovering a little bit. And then once you come out of that sleep cycle and you're going up towards REM, which is almost, you know, you sort of have to pass through wakefulness to get from deep sleep to REM because REM is like a little higher uh, brain frequency than being awake. And if your stress hormones are high enough, once you go through that wakeful period on your way to REM, you actually just wake up. And so men tend to be able to fall asleep really 
really well if they're really stressed, but then they do one sleep cycle and then that's enough to clear out all the waste products and then they wake up and then they have a hard time going back to sleep. That's very characteristic of male insomnia. Females tend to lay in bed and not be able to fall asleep. And these are generalizations. Of course, anybody can have any, all three types of insomnia. Any of the three types, I should say. The answer is, is I just explained how caffeine works and why it's so counterintuitive that it could ever make anybody sleep. But I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't know how it, I have no idea how that happens, but I do know that to be true. It's very rare. It's a very small subset of the population. My guess is that it's under 5% of the population and that's true for. And just in my, just in my experience, in my experience with working with clients, it's probably under 5%. Back to the repeat people, maybe that's why people, because some people like have a big dinner and then they have an espresso after and then they can fall asleep. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't have all the answers, but that, that one, I don't know the answer to. That's okay. That's okay. You touched on something else. That's a huge topic that I have a lot of questions about females, hormones. I'm just going to let you know some of the questions and then maybe you can speak to the whole hormonal aspect. So Cheryl says, hormones and insomnia. Oh boy, that's all she says. Valerie says, any advice on sleeping issues due to perimenopause slash menopause? Christina says, how to improve insomnia and get better sleep once you hit menopause? Moving beyond that, Joanne says, does he think this will help for postmenopausal women? She's talking about your, your sleep remedy supplement. She says, I just started taking sleep remedy for the first night. I slept great. The second night I slept awful. That is my normal routine, good than bad. It's a vicious cycle. Then I have two more like specific questions about menopause, but do you want to talk about hormones? Sure. There are a couple of factors, perimenopausal and menopausal. One thing to know is that the male's testicle and the female's ovary is exactly the same organ, okay? During embryogenesis, when you're in the womb, while, while you're form, forming the human, the testicles and the ovaries form in the same place, and they form in a very, very similar fashion, with one exception. And then the men's, uh, the males, obviously, eventually descend and fall out of the pelvic internal area, and they fall into this ugly, wrinkly sac. And then, the, and then that's the. The, the male testicle and the female, of course, the ovary stays inside. They don't have that. Now, both of those, both of those organs, again, they're the same organ. They both produce testosterone. The primary sex hormone in men, as most people know, is testosterone. The primary sex hormone in women, which most people don't know, don't know, is that is also testosterone. So what happens is an ovary has a lot of tissue around the outside of it that is high in this enzyme called aromatase. And what aromatase does is it converts testosterone to estrogen. Men have aromatase in their body fat, like not their internal around their organs, but their subcutaneous body fat. So the body fat you would see around, like if, you know, whatever, if they had their shirt off, like whatever body fat you would see, like that's the type of fat in a male that has aromatase in it. So you can see why like in 
16-year-old boy is very likely to have almost no body fat while going through puberty and have these high testosterone levels and have almost no conversion of that testosterone into estrogen to these really high testosterone levels, which leads to a lot of growth. Estrogen is almost non-existent in them, so they, they tend to keep growing and get taller and more muscular. It, testosterone is a very anabolic hormone. Females have a lot of estrogen because their their ovaries are producing testosterone, but as it's leaving the ovary and getting out into the bloodstream, it has to go through this tissue that has aromatase and it converts into estrogen. Now, if the ovary is producing more testosterone than the aromatase can convert, some of that testosterone slips by and that's where women get their basal testosterone levels from. Now, as I said, primary sex hormone in both male and female is testosterone. Men have 10 times more testosterone than women. Women have 10 times more estrogen than men. But women also have 10 times more testosterone than they have estrogen. So the first thing that you lose, perimenopausal, when your ovaries start slowing down, the first thing that you lose is testosterone. And in fact, this starts happening pretty early. I worked with one of my one of my mentors when I was in the SEAL teams and learning in alternative medicine. He's a uh, 40, 40 to 50 years in, in obstetrics and gynecology, researcher, professor, very smart. And he did a lot of alternative things, and I learned a lot from him. One of the things that he always said was that cellulite in women is primarily caused by a lack of testosterone. And that's, that's kind of a complex thing in there because what testosterone does is it sets something called neuromuscular tension, which so like your muscles aren't ever completely flaccid. And it can be as early as about 35 years old that the ovarian production of testosterone starts being inadequate to get past the aromatase and provide a woman with testosterone. So the, like I said, the muscles aren't all, you're not, your muscles are never completely relaxed. They always have some tension in them. And that's caused by and large by the, however much signal your nerves that are innervating those muscles are producing. And so the resting muscle potential has a lot to do with your nervous system, which is why you're, you're, you know, when you're stressed, you're tense, you're holding more muscle tension and you have little muscles that attach your skin to the fascia, which is the, the layer of sort of material that covers up your muscles and blood vessels and organs and all sorts of other stuff. And the skin is, is held in by these muscles. And then if you release the muscle tension, if you release the neuromuscular tension by decreasing the testosterone, then those get a little bit longer. And if they get a little bit longer, they let the skin go up. But some places the skin's actually attached to the fascia. So that stays there. And then that causes these odd little dimple shapes that what we call cellulite. Total aside. But I, I find that super interesting. Actually, wait, I'm going to insert one little thing. For those interested in fascia, I had a whole episode partly on it. Do you know Dr. Dana Cohen? She wrote a book called Quench. No, I don't think I know her. About hydration. But we talked about the fascia. So for listeners, I'll put a link in the show notes to that if they want to learn more. I'm really fascinated by it. It's fascinating. So the point of all that is that one of the things that we 
that we found out when I was working at the SEAL teams, um, there was an organization in the Navy called the Navy Health Research Center. It's just full of researchers, PhDs who are looking for something to do all the time. And they came over to the SEAL teams and started doing a lot of research around sleep and hormones when I started talking about that. And we were actually the first people to ever document this, which I think was intuitive to a lot of physicians, but nobody ever published it for any for some reason. But there is almost a direct correlation. So a perfect correlation is, is a correlation of one. And that would be if this, then that, like always, right? If if every time this happens, that happens, that's a perfect correlation of one. But if, if it happens 50% of the time, then that would be a correlation of like 0.5. So there's about a 0.8 correlation between your total testosterone level and your duration of sleep. And this is true in men and women. Uh, again, we were the first ones to document that. So I believe that female sleep can start getting worse well before menopause, simply because the ovaries are slowing down. So the total testosterone level in a female impacts her ability to get good quality and good duration of sleep. Now, the other thing that happens around menopause, man, we could go down so many rabbit holes and I'm trying not to get too complex with this, but the brain actually, as I was saying earlier, the brain is always sensing the hormone levels. Always, always, always. It's happening all the time. Most of it's highly regulated during the night, during deep sleep primarily. Ironically, there aren't a whole lot of testosterone receptors in the brain. And the primary sensing area that it, it, this area of the brain called the thalamus, which senses a lot of what's in the blood and then it and then it transfers that to the hypothalamus and then that simulates the pituitary to, you know, produce these signals to make more hormones or make less hormones. But there aren't a lot of testosterone receptors. There are a lot of estrogen receptor, receptors. So when a female's estrogen starts getting low, so this is now much further along the perimenopausal. And perimenopausal, I think, is technically defined as within five years. It could be as much as 10 minutes. It's like within five years of menopause or something. So it doesn't really mean a whole lot. Nobody knows exactly when you're going to go through menopause. But as the sort of ovaries are slowing down in their production, you're getting less and less testosterone. When you very likely, you're when you first start, you're still having plenty of estrogen. But over time, as the estrogen levels get lower and lower, the brain senses it. And then when your brain senses it, it stimulates the pituitary gland to secrete a hormone called luteinizing hormone. And when that hormone gets secreted, it, it causes an increase of ovarian production of testosterone and estrogen, essentially. So it's like trying to raise the estrogen level. However, that luteal surge, we call that a luteal surge, luteinizing hormone. So it's a luteal surge. Also, what comes with that is some stimulation of other activities. And one of the things that it causes is this an immune modulated flush. And that's what we call the hot flashes. Hormones, like every cell in your body is affected by every hormone. We categorize things into systems and stuff artificially because it's easier to talk about that. But like every hormone matters to every cell in the body at all times and it affects the DNA expression. Like there's all, it's a super complex issue. But the point is the two things that will 
keep women from being able to sleep well is low testosterone levels and a low enough estrogen level to call a, cause a luteal surge that causes hormonal hot flashes. The hot flashes are going to happen during your first phase of sleep, your second phase of sleep, maybe. 90 plus percent of all your sex hormones are made while you're in deep sleep at the first half of the night. So women do get hot flashes during the day, but they're much, they're much more rare and they primarily get them when they're trying to sleep. Progesterone can protect against that. DIM is a supplement that people can take that will, that, that females can take that could that would essentially increase their testosterone levels by decreasing their conversion to estrogen. Zinc would do the same thing. There are some supplemental things you can do around that. However, I would just encourage you to do your own research and, and, and probably work with a physician if you think that it's hormonal. I could talk for three or four hours about the, the women's healthcare initiative that led to all the women getting off of hormones and what a terrible idea that is. The, the easiest thing if you're perimenopausal is just to get on bioidentical hormones and replace all your hormones to a younger level, you know, physiologically younger level, and you'll sleep better. And you'll feel better and you'll have more muscle and less fat and you'll have more energy and higher sex drive and all sorts of great things. But I, I digress. This is a sleep talk. And so we'll talk about that. <laughs> but that's my, that's my answer to that. I have a really quick question about that especially something like progesterone, is there a big difference between taking that as, well, I don't know how, when it's prescribed. Do you take it as a pill when it's prescribed? Yeah, that, that's, that's the one hormone that you can take as a pill. Okay. Compared to like topically. And also speaking of repeat people, they're a big fan of progesterone. So like I've been playing around with progesterone cream for a long time. I don't know if that's a problem being younger. No, pro progesterone is a pretty safe hormone. It's it's involved in the whole complex pathway, but again, that would that would be a that would be a multi-hour conversation on its own. They've done research where they give men two hundred milligrams of progesterone in the middle of the day, and they fall asleep for fifteen minutes, and that's that's about the only measurable effect. So women, if they are on progesterone, should take it before they go to bed. It tends to help women fall asleep. Whether or not it's going to reduce the luteal surge that leads to the hot flashes is a very complex and nuanced conversation, but that goes well beyond the scope of anything we should try to talk about on here. So many questions I want to ask, but the nice thing is you answered a lot of the other questions, I said I had more questions about the hormones. Yeah, like Sherry wanted to know what causes women to sweat at night. Is it hormone related? Would sweating be related to the, the hot flashes? That's the luteal surge, yeah. Okay, yeah. Because Susie as well says, I still sweat and it's been two years since I've had my period. So I'm clearly done with menopause. No, so she's done with menstruating, which is not the same thing as being done with menopause. So menopause is essentially... a that's the definition of menopause is that you're done with menstruating menopause. But as far as the hormonal aspect of that, you know, there's multi multiple years of consequences for that. That do, it doesn't, as soon as you quit menstruating, it doesn't stop it. Like it, it's not that simple. Your brain and physiology have to change over multiple years. You actually, there's three different types of estrogen in the female's body and you start producing a lot more of another kind of 
estrogen that is really minor unless you're menopausal. There's one that's really minor unless you're pregnant. And then there's one that's kind of the primary one that that drives all sort of the estrogenic effects. And so when you go through menopause, eventually this other form of estrogen increases significantly receptor density changes all sorts of things happen and after a while a lot of the luteal surge stuff goes away but the lack of estrogenic effects things like bone density and so forth like that that obviously still continues and so you can have your own opinion about that stuff but the hormonal changes associated with menopause are not as simple as stopping menstruation rapid fire questions about dreams. There was a consistent theme that was coming around and that was whether or not you could remember dreams and what that might mean about your sleep. So for example, Rose says, why can't I recall any dreams? It's as if I don't dream, though I've heard that we are always dreaming. Does this mean I'm a light or heavy sleeper? And then Caroline says, does being able to remember your dreams affect your quality of sleep? I feel like on nights I remember my dreams. I am half lucid while dreaming and I don't sleep as well as compared to when I don't remember my dreams. And then Renee just wants to know about crazy dreaming and what that might mean. Well, crazy is a very loose term. I'm not sure it's even politically correct to say, so I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'm going to sidestep that one. I'll, I'll, I'll explain what I do know about dreams. It wakes her up and disturbs her so much that she can't fall back to sleep. I would love to have a, a histogram to put on your screen and I could point to things and describe this, but I'll do my best to describe it. Basically, you go through a deep sleep cycle. So you go from stage one, down to two, down to three, down to four, travel across the floor of four, like you're in the basement, and then you start climbing the steps back out of the basement. You're from four to three to two to one but you don't do one after that. You actually go to REM. If you remember, stage one is that pre-sleep groggy kind of phase. But do you, So you go from stage two, which is what we call transitional sleep, and there's some characteristic brainwave changes that we can see on the screen when we know you're in stage two sleep, and we can these spindles can fire, and then that puts you, like that's firing you into REM sleep. And what we know through research is that that is actually a trigger to rehearse or think about something that is important to you or that you've worked with that day or something. And we know if we have people study list and try to memorize the list and, and we can measure their brain waves and we can tell like when they're thinking about this thing, when they're trying to memorize this word, their brain looks this way. When they're trying to memorize that word, their brain looks that way. When they're trying to memorize this other word, their brain looks this way. And then we can put electrodes on their head and we can fire when they're in deep sleep. We can fire a little fire a little energy into their brain to cause the spindle to look a certain way. And we can cause them to remember certain words better than other words. So we know that there's this rehearsal ha aspect to it. How far back does it go? Obviously, you can dream about your childhood. You can have sort of all sort of esoteric, nonsensical dreams that everything blends together. There's a subconscious component to it. There's a conscious component to it. It's still up to deba debate whether the dreams actually mean anything. But one of, those, one of the people who asked this question was absolutely correct, is that we all we all are dreaming all the time while we're asleep, meaning that our brain is producing some sort of 
stimulus response to a stimulus that doesn't actually exist, right? We're seeing or thinking or feeling about something that's not actually happening. Now, I talked about deep sleep and REM sleep. Deep sleep, the super anabolic phase, you're not actually paralyzed during this bit. You know, obviously, your movement is significantly diminished, but you're not paralyzed. And so when you're in deep sleep, it's really anabolic. It's really restorative. There's a lot of repairing going on. You are dreaming. If you wake people up during deep sleep, when and they've done this with research, or if you wake people up and you were studying them, we know where they're at. We know where their brainwaves are at. And we know they're in deep sleep. And then we go wake them up and we say, are you, are you dreaming? And they'll be like, uh, yeah, but they can't really remember the dream or if they do, it's not, it's not super vivid. It doesn't, there's not a lot of activity to it. It's like, they didn't, yeah, like there was some sort of processing going on that I can kind of remember, but it's all kind of like foggy and not, not really specific. Not like I said, you go across the basement floor in stage four and then you climb out to three and then two, you get this little firing it causes this rehearsal and rem and you think about something really intensely and then we wake up somebody in rem sleep and we say are you dreaming and they say yeah what are you dreaming about well let me tell you sit down like i have all sorts of detail and it's very vivid and it has a lot of color and it has a lot of action and we can remember it very well we believe that that's where emotional categorization happens so for example, something glib and a little flippant, but just playful to, to say is like you have an argument with your spouse about doing the dishes or leaving socks on the floor or something like that. And it gets a little more heated than it should because you're both tired and irritable and whatever the case. And, and you have this suboptimal experience with that. Now, if you get a good night's sleep and you do all your REM and at some point that's going to fire and you're going to rehearse it and it, it'll likely happen three or four times during the night and then you process it and then you, and you put it in a little file, like kind of file, like if you think of like a hierarchical file system of like, well, this is something really important and significant. And this is like not so much and not so much and not so much. And like, and this is really kind of insignificant. Now, if you get good quality sleep all of the time, or after these events, then it's very likely you will categorize that in sort of the right state. This is one of the beliefs around PTSD is that PTSD is very frequently associated with sleep deprivation and chaotic sleep. And so they don't categorize things well. So if you don't categorize the, the dirty socks on the floor conversation, you might wake up tomorrow like hypersensitive to that. And then the next time your spouse does that, just like, 10 times as irritating. And now this is like, we're getting a divorce over the socks, which is obviously ridiculous. But again, that's a glib example of it, but that like, we know, we know this to be true. So yes, you're dreaming all night. REM sleeps is much more vivid, much more memorable. As I said earlier in this podcast and the one we've done before, the beginning of the night is primarily deep sleep, 90% deep sleep, 10% REM sleep. That transitions and progresses throughout the night to where your last sleep cycle is 90% REM sleep, 10% deep sleep. So the odds are if you get a full night's sleep, if you have good sleep quality, good sleep architecture, and you're transitioning through all of the stages well, and you have enough anabolic and hormones and everything is repairing and restored and you're progressing through a good night's sleep and your histogram looks great when we when we kind of 
plot it all out, it looks perfect. The odds are, because your last sleep cycle is 90% REM sleep, the odds are you're going to wake up in REM. If you wake up in REM, you're going to remember what you were dreaming about. If you wake up in deep sleep, you're not going to remember what you're dreaming about. Also, when you wake up in deep sleep, as I told you, the lowest your cortisol will ever be is while you're in deep sleep. So if you wake up in deep sleep, you're going to have lower cortisol. And cortisol is the hormone that keeps us alert in proportion to our environment. So you don't have a high enough cortisol level to be awake, but the alarm clock went off anyway. And now you wake up and you feel tired and you don't remember your dreams and you think you had a bad night's sleep, but you could have had a great night's sleep and it just happened to trans transition into you know, a deep sleep cycle right before you woke up. And an hour later, you're going to feel fine. You're going to have a great day and full of energy and all that other stuff. That is really fascinating. So the timing of the wake up is really key. Kind of like people who, like, would it almost be better sometimes to have less sleep but wake up at the end of a sleep cycle than a little bit more sleep and wake up in the middle? No, I mean, it, the the ideal is to get the sleep you need. If you get if you get all if you get all the sleep you need, you will wake up in REM. If you don't get enough sleep and you wake up in a REM cycle, you'll feel better when you wake up than you would feel if you woke up in a deep sleep cycle. However, you didn't restore as much. You're still increasing your risk of disease and shortening your lifespan, essentially. So it's still ideal to get that extra 30 minutes of sleep or extra hour of sleep or whatever that whatever that delta is, it's still better to actually get that. But you might subjectively feel better waking up from a REM sleep because, as I said, that's a higher brainwave state than even being awake is. And so you're going to wake up with just more neurostimulation and a more active brain and a higher cortisol level, and you're going to feel more like being awake. That That doesn't take away from the fact that you got inadequate sleep. It's just that you woke up feeling, you woke up at a more opportune time to not feel as tired from your, from your sleep deprivation. Oh my goodness. I have so many more questions, but I feel like (laughs) we cannot ask all of them. I do want to ask one question that I personally had and two people asked about. So I am going to ask it really quickly. And it has to do with breathing because I recently had an episode with James Nestor who wrote the book, Breath, which was an incredible book. And for listeners, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But how do you think breathing affects sleep? So for example, Susan says, I'd love to get his insight on open mouth sleeping and its long-term impact on sleep quality. My daughter does it and is perpetually tired, but just can't break the habit. And then Sophia says, mouth taping, what does he think of that? And for listeners, that's where you put tape over your mouth to force you to breathe through your nose at night. I know you've read the book and you realize there are some receptors in the nasopharyngeal pathway that can change some neurological functions. And that's, that's a pretty deep, complex conversation to have. But to simplify it, at the end of the day, and I don't mean to poo-poo that, there, there definitely is some significance to it, but at the end of the day, as you know, the, the CO2 levels is what makes us feel like breathing. 
that's that drives the urge to breathe. There's plenty of oxygen in the air for us to go for a really long time without reoxygenating. Uh, but the CO2 buildup causes us to want to force that out and to breathe more. So if you have something like, say, a deviated septum or uh, chronic inflammation, maybe you're in a mold toxicity situation or maybe you're you have allergies to you know the the flora in the area that you live in so you're you have a restricted nasal passage to be able to pull air through it might be harder well it would be harder to sleep you know to get adequate ventilation through your nose alone that's not the same as saying that you aren't using your nose at all it's just saying that because of whatever restrictions in there you might not be able to get an adequate amount of ventilation to where you don't have a CO2 buildup and a high, a high CO2 buildup that's acidic and that's a physiological stressor and that leads to increased stress hormones and that will wake you up. And so people, it, it's not, it's not something to be overlooked. You can't simply say, well, I'm going to tape my mouth shut because I've read that this helps people breathe because of these receptors in the nose and how that changes myriad uh, physiologic and neurologic functions. And so I'm just going to tape my mouth shut and, and suffer through it. Well, that, that's not a smart idea. If you're building up CO2, then that's going to lead to all sorts of negative effects on your sleep. So the the mouth taping is... I would just call that controversial. I, I'm not going to take a side on it. I don't. I I don't think there's enough information to know. I haven't read every research paper on it. I I can't. I can't say I'm the I'm the world's expert in that. But from what I've said, it from what I've seen, it's controversial. There's a lot of theory and speculation, and and a lot of this stuff. Basically. In order for you to get good sleep, you can't you can't be hypercapnic. You can't have too high of CO2 levels. There's no chance that you're going to have too high of oxygenation issues. The soft palate, so the area in the back of your throat, like where your nose, where your nose and the and your sort of tonsils kind of meet, that soft palate area. There's a lot of flexibility and pliability to that, and that can sort of occlude your breathing area. That's what causes snoring. Snoring is simply so much diaphragmatic pressure that is pulling past a tissue that's sort of obstructing the airway and it's and it's causing a pulsatile flapping of that. And that's that's the snoring noise. So are you are you going to sleep better by taping your mouth shut? Are you going to sleep better if you don't have your mouth open? And you aren't taping your mouth shut. Like, do do people who breathe through their mouth have a lower quality of sleep? I, there's no there's no research I'm aware of to suggest that any of that is true. By and large, breathing through your mouth is associated with hypersensitivity in your brain to CO2. So you have you kind of have a set point in your brain where CO2 levels get to a certain height and then you go, Oh, I have to breathe right now. Like I have, I have to take another breath and that, that can be trained. That's sort of what Wim Hof's type training is doing. It's training you past those limitations to where your receptors are less sensitive. And now you can handle higher CO2 levels without having this overwhelming urge to take a deep breath. All of that could be tied into an overall stress response. 
However, if you're properly oxygenating and blowing off CO2 during the night, I don't think it matters to a large degree whether it's happening through your mouth or your nose. For listeners, I will put a link in the show notes to the interview with James because we do dive in deeper to that. But to clarify, you don't have to like literally put duct tape over your mouth. We talk about that in the interview. It's more, I mean, he does just like a little piece of tape. It's really interesting to hear different perspectives on all of it. I still have more questions, but I feel like we got to wrap this up. In any case, thank you so much. This has been absolutely incredible. Again, for listeners, get Sleep Remedy. Don't think twice. Definitely try it. The link for that is melanieavalon.com slash sleep remedy. The coupon code melanieavalon will get you 10% off. And I can't let you go without asking the last question I ask every guest on this podcast. What is that question? What am I grateful for? What is something you're grateful for? What is something that I'm grateful for? I'm grateful to have a lot of meaningful, loving relationships in my life. That's a good thing to be grateful for. So for listeners, where can they best follow your work? Any links that you want to put out there? If you want information, oh, I meant to mention this in one of the questions. I actually have a blog with a video about menopause and sleep. That's on my website. So that's doc, D-O-C, Parsley, like the herb, P-A-R-S-L-E-Y, docparsley.com. You can play around with that. There's the the kid's guide and the stress-free sleep guide. But if you just go to that website, you should be able to find everything. The sleep supplement is also on that site. But if you want to go directly to this supplement page to learn more about the supplement, that's sleepremedy.com. And then there's sleepremedykids.com. And then I think in your show notes, you're going to list out a few of the links to the PDFs for helping decrease stress while you sleep or, or sleep being limited by stress and building a bedtime routine for your kids and all those other things. So yeah, actually, if you go to sleepremedykids.com, that that's built in. Docparsley.com is the safest thing. Do docparsley.com. I'll put direct links to everything. So again, that'll be at melanieavalon.com slash sleep questions to the number two. So thank you so much. This was absolutely incredible. I cannot express enough how grateful I am for everything that you're doing for the world (laughs) and the whole sleep atmosphere, the whole, your sleep supplement, all of the education that you're doing. It's really, really valuable. And I know I am forever grateful and I think my audience really benefits as well. So thank you so much. I I think it's fascinating that anybody cares and wants to listen, but I, I'm I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to answer your audience's questions and it's always a always a good time to talk to people who actually have any interest in the stuff I geek out on all day. Agreed. Well maybe when people have finally forgotten these episodes, we can bring you back in the future now. <laughs> I think this might traumatize people for years. It might be a decade before I come back. If they're still listening right now, I think they're fans. So I think they're already sold if they're still listening. <laughs> All right. Well, I will talk to you again soon. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine? 
Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got it.